did anything happen this weekend? Welcome back to another episode of the Out of the Box Podcast. It's episode 49, continuing on with season four. Gray Robertson and Tom Canterbury. Just to, you know, yeah. ho hum. Yeah, your right usual Monday. Yeah. Oh, wake up, work the nine to five, see a perfect game. Yeah. Not How really, are you, Tom? Not really red letter in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Doing good. Excited. It was a, a great weekend, obviously, for Alabama and a great week overall. And uh, the conference schedule really in full swing now for Alabama. Oh, my goodness. We've got so much to talk about on this show. Like, yes. so much. Like, too much. So, <laughs> I'm apologizing in advance. We'll start at the plate, go over the usual stuff, the weekly recap. Then we will preview this week the recap will probably be a little shorter because we did a twitter space last night and if you haven't heard that go check it out on the out of the box underscore pod twitter account but we'll look at the florida series coming up which obviously has huge implications then we will advance to first discuss the sec and what happened this past week the standings still a mess tim walton versus an auburn fan and I'm on the side of Tim Walton based on all the things that I've heard, but either way, it was quite the situation that popped up on Sunday. Yeah. Not something you see a whole lot, a whole lot and just a bad book all the way around. Yeah. Also, this is all when we're advancing to first, right? We've got the first bracketology of the year. Oh my gosh. And the FGCL player of the week. Mm. So prayers for that segment. Then we steal second with Smitty. Yes. Michelle is here in between flights and Zooms. She found time for us somehow. Yes, we appreciate it. And I know she was there doing not just a podcast, you're doing a TV show now. So a lot of stuff going on, but we appreciate uh, Shmini joining us. I'm waiting on True TV to call us Yeah, for the Out of the Box podcast TV show. Looking forward to it. I'm sure it's going to happen soon. Pop up on Oxygen or something. (laughs) <laughs> is Oprah does she have a network? Maybe we can yes, be owned <laughs> out of the box on own. We will then round third and give out some awards. It's the boxies, and we've got all of your usual midseason awards. We've got SEC Player of the Year, FGCL Player of the Year, stuff for Alabama, stuff for the national awards. And this has been, I think, by far, as long as we've done this, Tom, the toughest year to decide pretty much all of these awards. I was gonna say thank you so much for compiling some possible nominees because I have no idea. I, I am totally perplexed. There's one award that I looked at. And I was like, yes, I know. I know who's getting it right. out of the nine that we have written down. <laughs> uh, so that's amazing. That's when we round third. Also, we'll go over some big week eight games, including one happening right now as we record. Then we will head home. We've got SEC picks. We've got off the wall. Of course we do. Tom has a special off the wall as pertaining to WrestleMania that he would like to dive into. (laughs) And then we will wrap it up and get ready to get in the car and go to Gainesville. Right. Yes. Make the trek down. Looking forward to a great weekend, another Saturday, Sunday, Monday series. And the two preseason favorites could end up being just because no one's running away with this thing. So everyone is still kind of in it. So it's going to be obviously a very huge series this coming up weekend. We'll get to all that in just a bit. Let's go to the plate, stand in, and talk about what has happened, what has transpired in the last week. Before we get to the Georgia series, I want to make sure that we give Alex Salter her due, because before Lexi Kilfoyle was running, Alex Salter was walking with no hitters (laughs) against Alabama State on Tuesday, and all of the events of this week might overshadow that, but I want to make sure we really highlight how impressive that performance was for Salty in the circle. I think at this point... Patrick Murphy should say before every game, 
are we planning on this being a split game? Yes. Because because that was the plan on Monday, and it was the plan on uh, on Tuesday as well. And don't forget game three against South Carolina, too, when right. Montana was maybe the best she's been all year. Right. I, it seems as though that start whoever gets to start on those split games say, no, nah, I'll just take care of it myself. <laughs> and, and that's what Salty was able to do. Looked really good. I think it was, you know, a no-hitter considering the opponent, but still – I think it was probably her best performance as a member of the Crimson Tide and just something that she can really use as a springboard moving forward. Yeah, so congratulations to Salty. You know, that's always a big milestone in your career. So we're very proud of you, Alex. And it was a good win for Alabama. Wednesday was pushed to, as we're recording tomorrow, as you're listening, it could be later today or it just happened. Alabama-Jacksonville stayed at the Sand Mountain Showdown. So that meant we had a bunch of days off going into the Georgia series, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Before we look at the games, and there's so much to talk about, a really fun weekend because we got a chance to honor the national championship team from 2012, the 10-year anniversary. So I believe it was 18 or 19 of the players out of the 20 that were on that roster were back in town. Obviously, a lot of support staff, the whole coaching staff is still there. Right. So it was just really fun to see everybody with their families and fiancés and children and parents. And wow, what a weekend. It, it was awesome to see everybody and, and recognize uh, those players that have really, you know, the foundation was there for them and they, and they, you know, built a mansion with the, uh, to win the national championship. And, and it's, it's awesome to see that, you know, that family is still together because when we talked to Kendall Dawson, and Caleb Bro both said something to the effect of, you know, we came right here. Some of us haven't seen each other for for a year or so, and they fall right back in like like they that they're still playing. We've got a couple of members of the team uh, that won the championship are back on staff now with Alabama. Ryan I. Murray and Jane Spencer are here. It's just it is an ongoing, ever expanding family that Bama U represents. Yes, it was great to talk with Bro and Kendall Dawson on the air and. We met Dylan. Yes. We met Dylan. Oh, yes. That was the goal for the weekend. (laughs) I was happy, but then I got happier. Let's talk about the games, specifically the game, the perfect game on Monday night. We talked about it on the space. Again, what a performance from Lexi Kilfoyle. What a clinic in pitch calling from Steffi Van Brakel Prothrow. And what a night catching for Allie Shipman. Just well done all the way around. Yeah, everybody did a great job. The defense played really well behind her, even though Kilfoyle was able to, to strike out uh, a lot of people more than she normally does, but she did pitch the contact at times, and but was doing such a great job of hitting whatever spot was being called for her uh, and doing it in a way that was totally fooling the batters. Georgia had no clue. That, you but, could see the right. frustration Especially on their faces. After that first time through, because we've seen a lot of times this year, that first time through, it, you know, there's been no problems, but then you've seen the, the offense make the adjustments. They were making the adjustments and all their adjustments were wrong. Right. It, it, so they got more and more frustrated as the game went along instead of the other way. And it was, it was so impressive to see. Um, and Lexi Kilfoyle really kind of announced herself. If, if you didn't know, now, you know, uh, because she, she was there and is going to be an ace on this team. Both her and Montana Fouts are aces. Alabama has two. We've been trying to tell people. We were shouting it from the rooftops. I literally said, Lexi might be the SEC pitcher of the year in the preseason. Yeah. And on second thought, I kind of backed away from it. I'm I'm going back now. Yes. (laughs) That this is like a real thing. Yes. Anyway, let's talk about the offense. Tom, I'm going to quiz you. You ready? I know you love games. Good. All right. Who were the two players at the top of Alabama's batting average 
margin above the line uh-huh. in the Georgia series. Allie Shipman and Bailey Dowling. Bailey Dowling is correct. It is not Allie Shipman. It is Cat Grill. Oh, Cat. So Bailey Dowling and Cat Grill both hit 500 in the Georgia series. And I, I think we talked about this on the space, but I wanted to hit on it again. Bailey Dowling, an under the radar, just terrific weekend. 600 OBP. She is just starting to get better and better, starting to get that confidence back. I think Cat Grill has solidified her spot in right. And unless Savannah Woodard does something in a midweek game where she gets that start, to make it more interesting. I think Kat has earned that. Yeah. And everybody else behind, Shipman, Prangy, Johnson, Bloodworth, all those people were pretty solid too in, in the lineup. They were. And I, I, we mentioned that at one point uh, during the broadcast uh, this weekend that uh, Megan Bloodworth, I think, had a very mature weekend at the plate. Yes. In a couple of different ways. One, that she responded well when she was not the starter the last, the last week or so. And then two, came in and had really good approaches at the plate and even in, in her outs, seemed to have really good at-bats. So I was very impressed with what Bloodworth did this weekend. Absolutely. I will add, uh, Dallas Goodnight hit 222. You know, it, it still seems like there's there's almost like a lid on the basket. I don't know if that's what the softball term would be there. <laughs> right, yeah. But it, it just seems like she can't get the hits. Like somebody's always there when she puts the yeah. ball in play, and, and that's just tough luck. But the bounces will start to go her way again soon. Yeah, and but I, I did I liked her at bats a little bit better here this week as well, and even with the outs. And when she's and we saw when she did get on base, she was causing havoc. I yes. think you know think of the sacrifice by Prangy that took a good night from first to third. I mean that that type of stuff is what Alabama is able to do when Goodnight is on base. I was I was pretty pleased overall. I know they they wanted you know especially game one you know, when Goodnight was on third base twice and didn't score either time. But once once they kind of got over that and they were able to string some of those hits together and be able to bring in people like Goodnight, uh, I thought I really thought we saw what this offense is capable of doing. Finally, one last thing I want to touch on: potentially the DP situation. I did like what I saw from Aubrey Barnhart this weekend. I know the average in the series, you know, just one for six, but she did draw a couple walks. Her OBP at three seventy five. She again continues to make marked improvements. The one time that I kind of internally groaned a little bit was the strikeout with the bases loaded which to me that might have been just too big a moment at this point but I would rather her be in that situation now as opposed to facing it for the first time maybe this weekend in the SEC tournament you know a time like that she'll just learn from that moment and she got an opportunity the literally the very next inning yes to to redeem herself and did so that I mean that's that was one of the amazing things offensively of the perfect game for Alabama on Monday was that we saw even in because in the fourth inning Alabama left the bases loaded and didn't score and it was still zero zero and that's when we started to think oh no right this is going to be that game yes and then uh, the fifth inning almost was a almost carbon copy except for this time Alabama came through in in, in a big big way so let's look forward here is what's coming up this week Wednesday we hope we pray we want to go to Albertville (laughs) y'all we do if mother nature wants to stop being a (laughs) b-word we can play this game but Jacksonville State at the Sand Mountain Showdown is supposed to be on the schedule. Mm-hmm. I don't have a time listed because, honestly, we don't know what time it will be. Weather yeah. might force it to be moved up. Either way, before we dive into the Florida series, that game, I, I feel pretty confident about Jayla Torrance starting in particular because I feel like I have not seen her pitch in a month. It's, it's been a while. We, we we saw her sprint in to celebrate the KJA yes, and Homer. that was and the last time. <laughs> that has been the most – 
game action we have seen. And it's, it's just because that's the way the games have fallen. And the fact that, you know, Salter was throwing a no hitter in a game that Jayla was probably going to pitch in. And, right. then, and then the next game got, got postponed. So, but yeah, we need to get some more reps for Jayla because I still foresee her pitching in probably a couple of pretty big spots in the conference uh, before we're setting down here. Yeah. So that's going to happen for sure. And then, you know, in that midweek game lineup wise, you feel pretty confident throwing whoever you want out there. I've looked at Jacksonville state. That's a team that has the potential to hang around, but you know, I, I think Alabama should have a lot of success in that game. And then Saturday, Sunday, Monday, we go to Gainesville TV times have been updated for Saturday. That is now 4 PM central time on big ESPN with BMO and Smitty ESPN, the regular. Yes. And then we've got ESPN two on Sunday at three central time, Monday night softball again on the sec network. When Alabama and Florida meet, we know it is going to be intense. We know it's going to be crazy. I really enjoyed the trip to Gainesville last time. As did I, but I think this year might be the craziest because for the first time, really since we've ever been doing this together, I legitimately, legitimately do not know who Patrick Murphy is going to start in game one. You could make the argument at the beginning of last year in conference play, it was kind of the same way, Mm -hmm. but then Lexi Kilfoyle got hurt and Patrick Murphy's hand was forced. It was Montana game one, game three, the rest of the year, 2020, we only had the one conference series and we expected Montana to start game one, 2019, you knew it was going to be Montana. Now it is fully, however, Patrick Murphy wants to handle it. He can do it. However, Stephanie Van Brekel Prothrow wants to handle it. She can do it. Both options are viable, real, and confident options. And I think the, the most important part of it is that now, if you are the opponent of Alabama, you have to prepare for both all week long. You can't, well, we know we're going to get Montana in the first game because would not shock me at all for Lexi Gilfoy to get the start in, in game one. It's almost to the point where, and I said this on the space, if Montana started, I might be surprised. Right. Because of how well Lexi's playing. But at the same time, this would be literally the most rest Montana Fouts we have seen That's during true. the season without there being an injury involved, maybe ever, because, you know, she didn't, she pitched on Friday and would not have pitched again until saturday wow that's a good point assuming she doesn't she doesn't pitch against jacksonville state you might see an inning maybe. Might, but but if she doesn't again that i mean that's that is a long time to be off and we talked about with coach murphy on uh before the game on saturday we kind of saw that for some of the quote-unquote regulars in the regular lineup because they didn't they didn't play against the alabama state in the midweek so they kind of that who we played in the and midweek? it was i remember that's who we played yes okay uh, Stay tuned for that clip. That, Not tonight, but another great. episode down the road. Wonderful. Kind of the same thing. And if you're a pitcher, I would think the rest would be even better for you. If you have a refreshed and ready to go and maybe a little bit pissed off Montana Fouts coming in on Saturday, I've, I'm fine with her getting the start. In game. Yeah. It's the first time I can ever look you in the eye, Tom, and say pitching rotation. I don't know. And honestly, I don't care because I feel great about whichever card Patrick Murphy decides to play. And that, especially this year in this conference, is the ultimate advantage because all the teams who are throwing random pitchers are having to do it because there's nobody good enough to separate themselves as an ace. At Alabama, you have had two people who have shown that they are capable of separating themselves as an ace. That's remarkable. 100%. It's, it, it, and especially this year, something we're going to talk with, with Schmitty about too is that we're seeing those aces – not just in the SEC, but all over the country, yeah. getting getting roughed up a lot more than they normally are. If you're Alabama and you're able to establish yourself with two of them 
that not only bodes well for say this weekend against Florida, but into May and hopefully maybe even June. Lineup changes. I'm going to go with no. I love the Sunday, Monday lineups. Yeah. I mean, yes, the scoring came, you know, a little bit later on, but if we look at it, don't ask me to do math. That's 18 runs in two games combined. That's a pretty good output. Right. And, you know, and I will say this too about Abby Dore, who we are talking about not having a starting job if, if Aubrey Barnhart stays in as the DP. I thought Abby Dore as a pinch hitter did really well. And, you know, she has a history of doing well as a pinch hitter, and that yeah. might end up being her role more so than, than being an everyday starter. And as long as, as long as she's, you know, willing to accept that and, and you know, we'll, we'll sit in uh, on that, I think everything will be fine. And that's not saying she never starts again. She never right. gets any other She'll probably start on Wednesday. Right. But she needs to take advantage, advantage of those opportunities when she does start. Uh, but be ready and to be that, that really dangerous left-handed pinch hitter. That's something Alabama could definitely use moving forward. Yeah, because you know you've got the righties yeah. with the pinch hitting. So right. if you can add that power lefty, that'd be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Anything else we should touch on going into this week before we put it in play? Let me ask you this. Uh-oh. Since, since you've been... Uh, doing games with me do you think this is the first time that Alabama is a true favorite over Florida because there have been a lot of times where it has been a neck and neck uh, mm-hmm. but even going to Florida in 2019 when things went up going right really, really yeah that well, was Lorenz Barnhill yeah, you could yeah I don't think Montana could, was coming back from injury you could legitimately was, say Alabama was favored to win that series probably the closest example would be last year in the regular season but this is probably the most the most concrete, right. most concrete edge for Alabama in terms of perception going into the Alabama Florida series. Yeah. Well, and then I think a lot of that may be that there may be a little different look on it depending on how they play against Florida State coming up right. this week as well. Well, remember they crushed Florida State in the midweek right before Alabama went and swept That's true. the Gators in Gainesville in nineteen. I'm well, we'll talk more about the Gators later, but <laughs> I, I'm very curious about Charlotte Eccles. Because I'm wondering when she turns it on. Because she is not as bad as her stats say. No. And they're not even bad. No. But they're bad for Charlotte Eccles. And you got to wonder when the light's going to click on and she's going to get really rocking. And if you're Alabama, you certainly hope it's not this yeah, weekend. I was to say, may I suggest maybe week three of April? <laughs> that has to happen. <laughs> okay, Tom, we put it in play. Who are we? Well, we talked about how good she did this weekend. Let's go be, let's go be Bailey Dowling. Bailey Dowling. We have put it in play. And we're going to first, and we're ready to talk about the SEC. When we come back, we're going to try, but I really don't know what we can say tangibly that would make sense in a conference that doesn't whatsoever. No. We'll discuss the SEC when we get back here on the Out of the Box podcast. Welcome back to the Out of the Box podcast. Time to advance to first. We have been Bailey Dowling, and now we're standing at first trying to decipher the Da Vinci code that is the SEC standings. Tom, let's take a gander, shall we? Mm. Alabama's at number one. Boom! But in wins, mathematically, and math will come into play this year, people, so just we got to get ready for that. Right. Mathematically tied with Arkansas and Kentucky, and then you've got a hodgepodge of teams so confused that LSU down at 11, which, by the way, LSU is at 11. 11. They are a sweep away from being in second. They're only three games back of Arkansas and Kentucky. 
what the heck? Yeah, it, it's crazy. And that's why, you know, the series like Alabama had at South Carolina, getting a sweep there is so important. You haven't any opportunity to get a sweep. You got to do it because there's not going to be many in this league. And Alabama right now at eight and four. And you know, said the, the loss of a series is to the number 11 team right. who just got swept by the team Alabama beating a series. Which, by the way, does harken back to 2019. Remember, Alabama was blown by everybody, but the series loss was at South Carolina, who I believe finished 11th. I will say this, though. It's a good point about getting the sweep against South Carolina. Had Alabama lost that game, they'd be 7-5. and five. They would be fourth in the conference right. if that tells you anything about how crazy this year is the one game determined so much georgia had they won last night they are first in the standings they lost and right now i have to do math again they are seventh absurd nuts shall we break it down series by series sure arkansas takes two of three at ole miss the rebels a really great performance from anna borgen and from really the whole ole miss team in game one to win two nothing arkansas comes back 6-3 6-3 in game two. They went at 8-0, not in run rule fashion in game three. Mary Half, really good in that last game, a two-hit shutout. It's the end of a big-time streak for the Rebels. Ten straight home series wins for Ole Miss in conference play. That's crazy. I had, not, I had no idea. No idea. That has been snapped. Arkansas with a really hilarious tweet about it. Saw that. That was awesome. I, I really don't know what to make of it, honestly. Like, good for Arkansas for winning the series. We both picked them to win 2-1. I don't feel like our feelings have changed about either of these teams at this point. Not really. Uh, I do, because you saw Half have that type of performance, kind of more of her Half-like, you know, abilities. Uh, maybe you, you're taking a look at Arkansas now at 6-3 and three in the conference and maybe thinking that they might have a little bit better chance than thought earlier on, but they still have some really tough series coming up. Yeah, Ole Miss, I think they're going to be tricky. I think they're going to be one of those very tough to sweep teams, and I'm kind of glad, honestly, Alabama doesn't have them on the schedule because that would be kind of one of those pitfall series where if you drop one, you know, you never really know what can happen. So right. yeah. Arkansas will be a team to watch for sure. It was very interesting to see them start Dels in game one, by the way. Uh, which, you know, she didn't pitch poorly, but that was surprising. Let's move on to Knoxville. Tennessee wins games one and three in dominant fashion, both in run rule victories by a combined score of 19 to two. But they didn't sweep. (sighs) Yeah, Mississippi State won game two, eight to three. Ashley Rogers looked great, but she only threw seven innings combined. She won an epic battle, a 23-pitch at-bat against Madison Kennedy in game three that actually made me late to Rhodes because I couldn't leave in the middle of it. Mississippi State appears to be the boomer bust team. And for Tennessee, what has to be concerning is that a lot of the runs that Mississippi State put up in game two were off Aaron Edmondson. As good as Ashley Rodgers has looked, if Edmondson's form drops as Rodgers gets back to 100%, then they're right back where they started once again. Literally right here at the beginning. Mississippi State, like I said, I mean, they they might score nine runs one game, but the next two, right. you never know. And that that doesn't surprise us. We no. knew what we uh, could expect that from that team this year. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're very similar to Ole Miss. Like you said, their team is going to be tough to sweep because they have that ability to bust out. But they're a team that's going to be, it's frankly going to be hard for them to win series on a consistent basis because of the inconsistencies of that offense. Let's move on to the main event. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Trouble on the plains. They call it the loveliest village, but there were not niceties being traded on Sunday between Florida 
and Auburn. Now, Florida does win the series, and that's really important because Auburn outplayed them for sure in game one. We watched that whole game, yeah, and it was impressive what Auburn did. It surprised us. Florida came back, held on in game two, pretty dominant showing in game three, but the win wasn't really the story. It was the video that went viral of Tim Walton getting into a shouting match with an Auburn fan, and this is an Auburn fan that we both recognize and have heard uh, at Auburn games. I will say this, after hearing the context of the situation, what the fan said to the Florida players and about the Florida players, I actually admire Tim Walton for for standing up for his players like that. POS is the phrase that was used, and that shouldn't be said to another person in general, let alone to college athletes as a fan. Uh, That being said, the video makes it look much worse for Tim Walton than I think it actually was factually, and all in all, it was just kind of an ugly scene to to see as we were all checking our phones right before we went on the air on Sunday. Bad look all the way around for everyone involved. If you're a coach, no matter what a fan says, it's hard to, for me to justify getting, you know, arguing with the fan at the same time though, if that's, those were things that were said like event management security. Yes. at J.B. Moore Field needed to have been involved a lot quicker than they were. The, the fans should not have been around long enough to be in the video that they were recording. Right. That's, that's absolute crap. So got to get them out. That's where I think there was the main failure was in uh, the people at Auburn for not breaking up faster than it was. Because it looked like everyone was just sitting there. There was that just whole watching video. It. Yeah. There's no video. There, there's still nobody, staff members of any type that are coming down there. I, I have a feeling if something like that were to happen at Rhodes, uh, there would be people very quickly there to break it up. It has. I right. mean, not not quite that, not that partially, right. but I've I've seen smaller things bring sure. security down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, Auburn should have reacted quicker. Uh, it, it was just not great. It, it just bad, wasn't great. Just bad look all the way around. Yeah. So that that was a very odd. But Florida does win the series, and you know they go into this midweek of Florida State. They've got Alabama coming up this weekend. It's very important for them as a team with this pivotal week coming up that they got this win on the road against a good Auburn team that had been playing well. It was a bigger, it was a big thing for both teams because it set Florida up where they're only a game back of Alabama entering this weekend. And it kind of continued to bring Auburn back down to earth a little bit from the, the high lofty places that they were to start off the conference, which we weren't expecting. Missouri gets the sweep over South Carolina. And good job, Larissa. Yeah. You got to do it. Had to have that one. Yes. And the Tigers now have wins in conference play. Hooray. South Carolina has now lost nine in a row. Ouch. 18 and 17 overall. They're not doing really anything all that well. Overall, they're ninth in the conference in batting average. That has plummeted. I think they were fourth or fifth when we went to Columbia. They're 13th in overall ERA. Again, they are 18 and 17. They are absolutely 1,000% in danger of missing the NCAA tournament. Their RPI continues to drop. This is a team that has to figure out something pretty immediately because this is very much in danger of going off the rails. Yeah, as we said when we played them that, you know, South Carolina has the talent or has talent. I won't say they don't have the talent, but they have talent to be better than what they are. This is It's not coming together. Very difficult to figure out who is going to be any type of reliable option in the circle. So even if you have those games where the offense does perform well, uh, you're still giving up a bunch of runs. So it's, it's a, 
not a good time right now in Columbia. Yeah. And, you know, again, the other Columbia for Missouri, you know, you won the games you needed to win. Congratulations to Kim Wirt, your SEC player of the week, your new Missouri career home run leader. So well done, Kim and Larissa and Michaela and all our friends at Missouri. And now use the momentum you gain to do something going forward, because this was probably going to be your easiest series in conference play. It's all about what do you do next. Right. All right. Last uh, last series we need to talk about before we dive into what is a really hefty rest of this advancing to first <laughs> segment. Kentucky gets a sweep at LSU. What? Yeah. Who's sweeping? Not LSU. No. They're getting swept. And you know what's really weird? LSU had a lead in all three games. Game one, Kentucky wins 5-3. LSU led 3-1 in the sixth. Game two, LSU started off with a 4-0 lead in the third. Yeah. Kentucky wins 8-5. Game three, we're tracking it. SID extraordinaire Nathan Sheehan says, which one of you needed LSU to win this game? Looks like it's going to happen. Why? Because LSU was winning 3-1 in the seventh. (laughs) Yeah. And Kentucky scores four runs in the seventh to win 5-3. Insane. Uh, How and why... And what and why and how? Well, I can give you a bit of an answer. Oh, good. But to do so, I need to talk about who's pitching. Who pitched and was pitching. The who's pitching column for Kentucky. The easy. Everybody. Yes. The easy name to read here is Tatum Spangler. But yes, seven pitchers appeared in the LSU series. But it was Spangler who was the best. Nine innings, five hits, one run. It was earned four walks and nine strikeouts. She won all three games in this series. And I, I kind of you know feel bad for her because she probably thought going into last night, I've got SEC Pitcher of the Week yeah. on lock. <laughs> and she had my vote until Lexi Kilfoyle threw a perfect right. game. She was like, as long as Kilfoyle didn't, or Fouts doesn't throw a perfect game, I think I got it. Oh, <laughs> but still a remarkable weekend to go on the road and win all three games in a conference series. And she pitched great in relief in the midweek as well. in a loss to Ohio state, very impressive. And for Kentucky, maybe they have finally found an answer to the who's pitching question. Right. Because, you know, Spangler was dealing with an injury. We didn't see her in the circle at all. When Alabama played Kentucky Stoddard was, if they had a quote unquote ace, it would be probably Stoddard, but kind of taking a little bit of the, uh, of the pressure off of her and uh, giving Rachel another option out the, out of the bullpen. Absolutely. And for LSU, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, we saw them get two out of three against Alabama. And since then a three and eight record with wins over Southeastern Louisiana Nichols and a great win at Arkansas. All right. So other than that win in Arkansas, they just went through the Mardi Gras mambo mambo. Yes. Uh, but Mambo. Mambo. That's ridiculous. How are they three and eight since they looked really, really good against Alabama? And look at the ways they've lost. Two shutout losses at Texas, and then they lose 11-10. Right. Arkansas game one, we watched that game. Their offense was great, but they couldn't get Arkansas out. And then, you know, against Kentucky, the pitching was great until the end. The offense did okay. They probably could have done better, but they're just losing in a variety of ways. Mind-numbingly perplexing. Yeah. What, what is going on with LSU? I wonder if they will pop up. On the first edition of Bracketology. Ooh. That is a segue, folks. It's Love time that. for Bracketology Part 1. Before, Real quickly, before they do that, though. If Alabama and LSU play the three games in three days instead of a doubleheader on Saturday, I now definitely think Alabama would have won that series. I'm with you. I think Alabama had one bad day. Unfortunately, it was 
a game a day that they played two games. Why couldn't it have been on Sunday? <laughs> Why couldn't that have been the bad day? <sighs> okay, we all remember how this works. I do the top 16 seeds. I have poured over a lot of categories. I put 24 teams on the page initially and then you know, whittled it down a bit. There actually was a result today that would impact this if it were played yesterday. That's Notre Dame beating Northwestern. But because it literally just went final, this is not factoring in that result. Okay. okay. Are you ready? I'm, I'm stoked and excited. Number one, Oklahoma. Two, Alabama. Three, UCLA. Four, Virginia Tech. Five, Florida State. Six, Northwestern. Seven, Oklahoma State. Eight, Florida. Nine, Tennessee. Ten, Duke. Eleven, UCF. Twelve, Texas. Thirteen, Clemson. Fourteen, Kentucky. 15, Arkansas, 16, Arizona State. And then your next four out, or I should say first four out, Washington, Georgia, LSU, Auburn. So as usual, Tom, hit me with your questions. Mm. Let me let me take a look at the, the 16. So that would be setting up, if the seeds were to hold, a super regional matchup with Arkansas coming to Alabama. In fact, I'll read them all. Oh, How about yes. that? Here, here's the supers matchups you would get. One, Oklahoma, 16, Arizona State, which on paper, yes, sign me up. Yeah. That'd be fun. Like you said, Alabama, Arkansas, 215. 314, UCLA, Kentucky. Again, sign me up. Yes. And as per usual, Kentucky sent out west. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Rachel. 413, Virginia Tech, Clemson. Don't love that as much. 512, you've got Florida State and Texas. 611, Northwestern, UCF. What a... Wow. Very interesting matchup mm. that would be. 7-10, Oklahoma State, Duke, and 8-9, sorry guys, Florida, Tennessee. Yes. Again, now hit me with your questions. Okay. What separates right now Arizona State from Washington giving the Sun Devils the 16 over Washington and the 17? Right now for Arizona State, it is the fact that they have not lost a ton in key categories. Arizona State is 1-1 one one in top 10 RPI matchups, Washington 2-4. and four. You know, against the top 25 in the RPI, Washington is five and five, Arizona State two and one. But against the top 50, Arizona State is 11 and two, Washington is eight and nine. So Arizona State's success there, to me, put them just ahead. When they play, you know, we're going to get some more help there. Also, Arizona State has pretty good wins to match what Washington has. Washington beat Oklahoma State and Tennessee. Arizona State beat Duke and won at Texas. So that's pretty handy, pretty even. Uh, the one mark that hurts Arizona state compared to the Huskies is the non-conference strength of schedule at one Oh nine Washington's is at 16, but Arizona state six and zero in pac 12 play Washington three and six. And the other metrics I've talked about put them just ahead. But like I said, this is a scenario where we will be able to handle it, you know, between yeah. these two teams in the next few weeks. What, uh, what has UCF been able to do to get themselves all the way up to a number 11 seed? It's interesting, isn't it? It is. UCF, you know, a not power five team. I know we don't really use that term in softball. So 30 and 10 overall, they've got a strength of schedule at 15 and most importantly to committees. So I'm starting to look at it more non-conference strength of schedule at 13, which is very strong for a yeah. team outside the big five conferences. They've got a top 10 win. It happened yesterday against Virginia Tech. They've got five top 25 wins. Yes, it's a five and seven record, but they've got enough of them. They're eight and one on the road. Their worst losses to South Carolina, so they haven't lost outside the top 40 in the RPI. Their average losses RPI number is 16, which is really good when you've lost 10 times. Yeah. So UCF is taking care of their business. 
Everybody they've lost to has been inside the top 50. They've got 11 top 50 RPI wins, and they've got some head-to-head matchups like over Texas, uh, like Virginia Tech, that really helps out their resume. Virginia Tech coming in at number four as we spin over to them. How much does the fact that they got in this kind of affects UCF too, that yes, UCF got one win, but Virginia Tech got two wins in that series. How much does it affect UCF and then Virginia Tech? What have they done to be up at number four? Well, it affects UCF, I think, way more, although it does help Virginia Tech because those are now their second and third best wins. The previous best win was against Northwestern on a neutral site. Because they do not have a win over Alabama. Alabama beat them both times. <laughs> That's correct. Yes. Why Virginia Tech, honestly, is at number four instead of being higher is because A, head-to-head against Alabama and against UCLA – Virginia Tech, their resume in a lot of the win metrics isn't all that much better than what UCLA has. And UCLA's worst loss is to a Northwestern team that is sixth in the RPI. Virginia Tech's worst loss isn't bad, but it's at Charlotte, who's 31. So that's a big, big difference right there. But Virginia Tech will move up. You know, probably not past Alabama because put it on a shirt, head to head has to matter, but probably past UCLA if they can find a way to win or do more this weekend in their series of Florida State. And just philosophically, when you do bracketology, is this is this what you think the committee is going to do? Is this what you would do? This is what I would do with a little bit of what I think the committee will do. So I, I took more stock this year than normal into non-conference strength of schedule because we've just we've had too much evidence of the committee caring way too much about that metric. But to me, the things that always matter the most are head-to-head, results on the field, who you've beaten, and who you've lost to. Metrics can lie sometimes. Remember, we talked about it last week. It's hard to argue with numbers, but there is no way in heck that the ACC is the fourth best conference in college softball this year. That's just not a thing. And I haven't checked it today as they've updated the numbers, but two weeks ago, they were fourth out of the Power Five conferences. It's ridiculous. It's insane. Yeah. So, Again, I try and look at it as I would hope the committee would with eye test, with metrics, with valuing how the numbers are played. I think if you look at Oklahoma, I'm surprised you didn't ask about them, probably because you assume they're going to be the number one seed, right? Right. Yeah. Their resume is nowhere close to as strong as Virginia Tech's, Alabama's, or UCLA's. But we saw last year that the committee in one area valued eye tests, and that was putting Oklahoma as the number one overall seed, when at the time, a lot of us believed it would be UCLA. So even though OU's resume isn't there yet, they haven't lost and they've looked the part when people have seen them. And because of that, they're the easy number one seed. When they lose a game or two, then we can start talking about sliding down a spot here or there. Yeah, because of, you know, the resume not being as strong, they have a less of a margin for error when they do lose. Anything else you'd like to touch on before we move on? Is Duke really the 10th best team? Is Duke really a top 10 team? I don't know. I don't, I, I still don't think so. I think that they are, I think that they have earned where they are, but I'm not sure I would pick them to -hmm. make a trip to the world series. I'm, I want to pick them against Oklahoma state. If 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 that ends up being the super regional, uh, cowgirls are going. Yeah. Same. Okay. Same deal. All right. Again, of course, my favorite part about this exercise, it's all going to change next week. Forget everything we said next week. Stay tuned for that. (laughs) Okay, one more thing we need to get to before we move on and steal second with Michelle Smith. It's the FGCL Player of the Week. Got eight nominees again. 
because there are just too many darn good ones this week. And a few more uh, usual suspects on the list here, I see. We've got some people coming back. We will start with Melissa Mayu from Louisiana, five for 11 with five RBIs, two home runs, couple doubles, a strikeout, four runs scored, had the go-ahead two RBI single in the eighth to take a 6-4 lead on Texas in a game. The Cajuns would win 6-5. Why is that important? Not only is it a win, obviously, and a key play by Mayu, but it's the first ranked win of the year for the Cajuns. And until the postseason, they're only shot to get one. So mm-hmm. that was a gigantic game for Jerry Glasgow's team, and Melissa Mayu came through. Meryl Streep is back. The Iron Lady, mm. Mac Leonard, has returned, <laughs> Florida State. And we've got two bullet points because she threw an inning in two-thirds this week. No hits, nothing, actually, except for two strikeouts. And then at the plate, 10 for 18 with 10 RBI, four doubles, three walks, a strikeout, and four runs scored. Wow. And as we talked about last week with Florida State, possible kind of trappy type series of Virginia, but they took care of business. They dominated. Yeah. I think they outscored them nine, nothing combined in the first inning in all three games, but Mac Leonard wasn't the ACC player of the week. Mm. It was Michaela Edenfield. Tom, sorry. Be nice. Sorry. Sorry. Michaela Edenfield. These numbers are absurd. Six of 14. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. 10 RBI, three homers, a double six walks. Three strikeouts and six runs scored. That is all coming from your catcher. Man. It's just crazy. (laughs) Beast. Victoria Ortiz, South Alabama, four for six, four RBI, a home run, a triple, a walk, a strikeout, and three runs scored. Jada McFarland at Maryland. She was out of a lineup for a couple weeks. I don't know why. If it was a benching, she learned her lesson because she has come back and been strong the last few weeks. If you're Maryland, can you afford to bench Jada McFarland? Yeah, the reigning Big Ten freshman of the year. I don't think so. Either way, whatever kept her out, she's back. And man, is she killing it. Six for 12, four RBIs, a home run, a triple, a double, two strikeouts, five runs scored. Maryland got a series win this weekend against Iowa. Also, there's a video out there. I'll tweet it from the Out of the Box podcast account of an insane slide that Jada McFarlane had coming into home. Tom, I'm going to play this video for you of the McFarlane slide. Here we go. All right. We're going to react in real time. She's dead, right? Oh, yeah, That's no, it. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> she ran around it and then dove in. Right. By the window <laughs> and down. It's good stuff. Well done, Jada. Wow. We've got Kate Houston, last week's winner from Appalachian State. She is back. Five for 15 with seven RBI, three more home runs, two walks, a strikeout, four runs scored, had a walk-off home run in the eighth to win game one against Georgia Southern, two to one. So just continuing to pummel it. Allie Micklish, Wisconsin, five for six in RBI, couple doubles, four walks, and a run scored. And finally, some love for the pitchers. Morgan Scott, UNC Greensboro. 21 innings, nine hits, two runs, one earned, Two walks and 35 strikeouts. Wow. Can you see why this is as Mm -hmm. loaded a list as it's been all year? It is a loaded list. Oh, so I got to pick two. You have to pick two finalists. I love the slide, but I I don't, with so many other really gaudy numbers, I think as much as I hate to do it, I think I'm going to have to pick the two Florida State girls. Wow. Great. Okay. Yeah. Well then, you know what? Michaela... We love you. You've already won this award once, but you got ACC Player of the Week, right. and I want to spread the love. Oh, so I'm gonna give it to Merrill. Oh, good, <laughs> because because she never wins. Mac anything. Leonard's never won this in her life at Florida State. That's true. Your FGCL Player of the Week for Week Eight is Mac Leonard. Congrats, Mac. Way to go! 
Oh man. Now beat Florida. Uh, Mac and I have been talking about it. Actually, we've been Snapchatting and discussing oh, good. some things good. for this week. <laughs> I've let her know what's at stake. <laughs> okay, that's us advancing to first time. Now you know we've got the sign. It's time to go. Steal second with Michelle Smith. Talking to an Olympian. Smitty, when the Olympian does it, I can too. Right. Tom Canterbury, Michael Scott. <laughs> Put it on his shirt. Wayne Gretzky. Okay. <laughs> Try race board. When we come back, Michelle Smith is here. We'll talk about the perfect game. We'll discuss pitching. We've got a lot of stories and, frankly, a lot of topics to cover. We'll talk umpires. Oh, boy. <laughs> Ball or strike? Who knows? Who knows? That's coming up when we get back here on the Out of the Box Podcast. Welcome back to the Out of the Box Podcast. It is time to steal second. Gray Robertson and Tom Canterbury with our guest. And this is going to be like a big intro because there are so many things to say. We've got an Olympian. We've got an Oklahoma State cowgirl, part of a seven innings podcast. Not only the podcast, but now a TV show, which as you're listening to this, it will drop Wednesday night. Uh, what else? ESPN analyst, also holder upper of hands at foul balls. Michelle Smith is here. Michelle, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. I am great. So nice to be here with y'all uh, actually talking and not not like with a pane of glass between us. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it is, you know, a little, little, little bit further away than the pane of glass, but it, this is awesome. <laughs> well, we were so excited to see you this weekend. And man, yeah. what a series that we get to talk about. I, you know, writing this down, I worked on this before game three and I said, I wanted to ask you about your major takeaways. Now there's no other topic I can ask about other than the perfect game from Lexi Kilfoyle. What a night from her in the circle. Outstanding. Um, you know, and it was really fun to see, I, you know, for me, it brings up a couple things because I think sometimes nowadays we're so protective of our pitchers and we think, oh, you know, the hitters are so good. They need more rest. And, and there's absolutely a component to all of that. But there are some pitchers that are like thoroughbreds. And and I was definitely the same way. I always threw better my second day. And usually I'm talking my second consecutive day. So when I would pitch professionally in Japan, all of our games were back to back to back. And, um, and I would throw two days back to back, three days back to back. And so, you know, getting to Lexi, I thought she looked better on her second day than on her first day. And sometimes when you're a power pitcher, you're strong, you're not throwing through your spins, you know, you're, you're, you're working on the other nuances that make you a pitcher, not just a thrower. And, and I think that, you know, Lexi is more of that pitcher. She's not going to blow the ball past people like Montana w will at times, but you know, I, I liked what she did. She located her pitches. Her drop was outstanding. She, her speeds, the variation of her velocities outstanding. And when you pitch like that, there you go. One, two, three innings and one, two, three innings add up to be a perfect game eventually. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a great day for uh, the fielders behind her as well, because Lexi is going to be a pitcher that is going to pitch the contact. Although she had a lot of strikeouts kind of, kind of yep. different than what she normally does, but uh, just overall, everybody had a really great game there on Monday. And, and that's always a perfect game, right? We, you know, the pitcher gets the credit, but it, that's a team that it, that is a kudos for the entire team for the battery. I love the fact that Allie, you know, Shipman had the uh, walk off, right? She hit the three arm bomb to, to end it. Um, I think she would have probably still thrown the perfect game, even if it did go into the seventh. Um, but it is absolutely always a team effort. Every perfect game I ever threw in my career, there was always one play that 
you know, it could have been a hit. It could have you know, a variation of different, a, a call that your, your catcher steals for you, wh whatever it is. I mean, there is always a component where that is a team effort and a team accolade, even though it's, you know, the pitcher gets the credit for it. I did want to ask you about Montana because we saw her on game one and, you know, you and I were texting and passing along all these great stats for Monday and none of them <laughs> came to fruition at all. But the number that we spent a lot of time talking about was her percentage of one, two, three innings, which this year is 56% versus her opposing batting average with runners on, which is right now at 370 in conference play. And it, it's a confusing stat, honestly, Michelle, because I'm not sure what to make of it. As a former pitcher, what do you read from those numbers? Uh, honestly, it is extremely confusing. And what I read from it is when she's good, she's really good. And when she's bad, she's really bad. And so, you know, we have to remember, we look at Montana and we're like, you know, she's this big, beautiful woman. And you're like, you think all this experience and all this power, she's still young, you know, in the scope of things, she is still a very young pitcher. And so what, what I kind of think is that once the door starts to get like jammed open by the opposing offense, she has to figure out a way to keep it shut. You know, they're trying to knock the door open. She's got to figure out what do I do? Do I, do I, do I pause more? Do I create a different tempo? Do I, you know, she, we, we all know that she's missing a, a variation of speed component uh, it, it, within all the pitches that she throws. I think once she develops that, not only does she, go on to do bigger and better things, you know, in her collegiate career, but internationally for team USA. And so, you know, I'm looking not just a year or two years out, I'm looking five years out and eight years out for the next Olympic games, you know, cause that, that's where, that's where I see Montana. Um, but in order to get there, she has to develop a variation of speed um, because 70 miles an hour doesn't fool anyone, especially if it's going to be over the plate and then you get an umpire squeezing the zone. So for me, I read that stat that when she's good, she's really good. She can dominate absolutely and can throw the ball past people. But once they have the chance and opportunity to adjust, they capitalize. I think the other incredibly crazy stat is that if you look at Montana strikeouts, I would think, and you guys see her more than I do, but I would think the lion's share of her strikeouts are a rise ball and maybe the curve or something going away. But yet when you look at her balls in play, 70% of her outs come on the ground, not in the air. And that's not a statistics that you see for a rise ball up in the zone type pitcher, which tells me that her opponents are working really, really hard to lay off her high heat, her rise ball. You mentioned that was long wind. That was long winded. Sorry. No. <laughs> you you mentioned uh, the umpire uh, squeezing the zone at times, and unfortunately, yeah. umpiring this season is well, it's been an issue for a while. But uh, this yeah. season, it's been a discussion point where we're seeing very inconsistent zones from the home plate umpire, yeah. um, and it's hard enough to throw a strike in college softball. But when you don't know what the zone is, it's even harder. Um, what do you think can be done to try to make things a little bit more consistent? Uh, with the umpiring. Yeah, that's a tough, tough situation because I feel for them too. I mean, they are literally in a no-win situation. On a close call, 50% of the people are going to think that's a good call and the other 50% is 50 are going to think it's a bad call, right? The umpires are in an absolute no-win situation. I think that the key word is, like you said, is the consistency because then at least the hitters know, all right, he's not or she's not given the outside corner, but she's stretching the zone a little bit on the inside. So you can make those adjustments and you, you, you can predict, all right, this pitch will be a strike. This pitch is a ball. If it's a ball, I'm letting it go. If it's a strike, I'm, I'm attacking it. Um, 
you know, I, I don't know what it is though. Is it just that the umpires aren't getting enough reps, enough looks, you know, a lot of, for a lot of these folks, it's their, it's their second job. It's not their primary job. They're not making a living doing this. So I think that's very difficult. Do we need a consistent, true strike zone? Absolutely. I'm sorry. And, and, and I was a hitting pitcher, so I'm not just saying this as a pitcher, but I think a slightly larger zone is better than a smaller zone because nobody goes to watch baseball or softball to watch hitters keep a bat on their shoulder. I want to poke my eye out when I see that, right? I would, I would rather see hitters being rung up on pitches that are close to the zone because you know what, then they, they can make an adjustment and they can go up and hit it. They can get closer to the plate. They can move up in the box. They can make adjustments. But I feel like nowadays, sometimes with our coaches, we don't allow kids to be free and make those adjustments. You know, we keep them so strapped into certain environments within the box that, you know, they can't make adjustments to put themselves in a better hitting situation. Um, and even for the pitchers, there's so many calls coming in from the dugout that I wonder how many times pitchers are actually thinking, okay, it's Oh two, it's a one, two count. How am I throwing this pitch? You know, because they're so busy reading off the numbers and being, Oh, that's a drop ball outside. Well, is it a drop ball outside? Like, on the edge or is it like in the river or is it in the opposing batter's box? You know, you know what I'm saying? There's all these different things as a pitcher that you go through when you're calling your own game. And when these student athletes are just having information fed to them, they just, they become more um, robotic. And, and obviously that, you know, it's not a good way to pitch, but I, th I do think the strike zone has to be addressed. Um, but I'm always for a slightly larger, more so than, than smaller. I do want to ask one more pitching question before we dive into some other teams outside of Alabama, because maybe last night we saw an answer and I, I kind of tease this to you. Who is the SEC pitcher of the year right now? Because we're seeing so many perceived aces get rocked. Maybe the pitcher pitching best is Ashley Rogers, but there's not enough, I think, innings for her to even be in contention right now for that award. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a crapshoot for everything this year. Pitcher of the year, player of the year. I mean, I think that you have to throw Lexi's name in there just based on what she did yesterday and getting the winning game too, coming back to back. Um, I think the bigger question, even before we get to the end of the season and who's pitcher of the year is, how's Murphy going to use his staff against Florida this weekend? You know, that's what I want to know. I can't wait to see. I'm going to be like, all right, I, well, this is a great coaching decision. I cannot wait to see how he throws game one, two, and three. I mean, you're, you're talking about the two programs that have won the SEC regular championship or shared, you know, the regular season SEC championship for 10 plus years. So um, this is going to be a battle this weekend. But I, I mean, to your point, I think you can throw Lexi in there. I mean, Mary Half has been roughed up this year. Like you said, Ashley Rogers is coming back strong, but has been injured, probably doesn't have enough. I, I don't know. Elizabeth Hightower hasn't had her best stuff like what we saw last year. It, it, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know who's voting on it, but it's going to be, it's going to be a tough vote. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know who we're going to pick either when we do our midseason awards here in just yeah. a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk some more about Alabama and Florida, but taking a look at what the Gators have done so far this year, um, especially in the conference, uh, not quite what, what living up to expectations so far, what, have, what have been your, your outlook on what the Gators have done? Um, you know, the Gators are, are, are a typical Tim Walton team. They're very well-versed in every aspect of the game. They play great defense. 
Their pitching, their pitching has probably been the one area that is not as strong as what we've seen in the past. Their offense is good, but they're, you know, they're like a chameleon. Well, you know, he is like, he molds his offense every year. He does such a good job of getting the most out of him, depending on what he, if he's got power, he plays the power card. If he's got speed like this year, he plays the speed card. So I think this is just, again, it's a very complete team. Have they lost games? Yes. Are they well down in the standings more so than what we thought? Absolutely. Yes. But I think an interesting stat is that no team has ever won the regular season SEC championship with more than six losses. I think this year we blow through it. I think the regular season uh, champion in the SEC probably has eight losses just because that's how much everybody is, is being, is being beat up. I think that there's, I, I, I think it's very hard to sweep a series. I, I just don't see, I don't think you see a lot of it. I mean, Kentucky going into LSU and, and sweeping them there. That was like, to me, mind blowing. I mean, there's, there's a, I, I just think it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, and I think that's obviously what we're, we're seeing with the Gators, but I think, you know, again, they're just a, always a very strong Tim Walton team, great defense. Uh, and the great defense is needed this year because their pitching is not quite as strong as what it's been in years past. I wanted to touch on LSU as well, because you saw Alabama LSU a couple weeks ago, you've seen the Tigers a couple times this season, what in the world? Uh, help us make sense of what these results have been like, because they looked amazing against yeah. Alabama. Then they go to Texas and get swept, and then they get swept at home by Kentucky after having a great series at Arkansas. It, it's, it's, it, yeah, exactly. It, it's hard to figure out. And I think, you know, Beth Torina, she's, when I'm talking with her, she's like, please, what, what, what are you saying? Like, if, if, if you could say something, what would you say? What would you, what are you saying? You know, and, and again, she's joking about all that, but you know, I think sometimes we forget these are still 18 to 22 year olds. All right. With COVID years, maybe they're 23, 24 now, um, and, but they're still really young athletes. And with that, with that comes some inconsistencies and, and unpredictability. And, um, you know, like Taylor Pleasance is probably one of the best shortstops in the game. And, and I feel like the, the second she made Team USA and all of a sudden all this pressure was put on her, like you are now a national team member you are like one of the best in the world it's hard for some of these younger athletes to cope with that pressure that expectation that you're supposed to be perfect day in and day out you don't have to be perfect day in and day out you have to be mentally strong you know and I think there's a lot of people now finally starting to talk about uh, elite athletes and how how do you stay mentally prepared? How do you stay mentally where you need to be? And, you know, for my career, it was hard. There were moments in, in my career. Absolutely. I, my confidence had a little chink in it, but, you know, I think my saving grace is a lot of times I would go back and be like, there are 1.5 billion Chinese that don't care if I win this game, you know? So I would put it in perspective, you know what I'm saying? There's 7 billion people on this earth that don't care, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it takes a little bit of pressure off. And so I think that's maybe what LSU needs to go through. They need to realize that big picture, absolutely so important, but play free, go out and have fun. Don't have the weight of the world. Oh, you know, we want to do so much better. We, you know, Florida state walked us off and we didn't get to go to the world series last year. So we have a chip on our shoulder. Ah, it's over. You know, <laughs> you just don't lay, don't have all that garbage, that baggage. You just got to go out and play free. And, and so I think sometimes we see these teams that struggle with that and there's the expectation. I think the other thing too, guys, is that this is a simple game, right? And you hear coaches say it all the time. You catch the ball, you throw the ball, 
you hit the ball, you run 60 feet, you turn left, you know, don't overcomplicate it. And sometimes, you know, coaches, they have these big jobs and these big salaries and these big expectations and they overcoach the kids, let them play free. Just let them go. They're thoroughbreds, let them go, let them run. And, and because they're great athletes, they'll figure it out. Outside the SEC, a couple of big series this weekend. One of them happening in Tallahassee in the ACC, Virginia Tech mm-hmm. and Florida State, two teams that we've both seen in person as they played Alabama, but uh, two not only conference contenders, but possible national championship contenders. What do you think you're going to see in Tallahassee this weekend? Uh, absolutely. I, you know what? I think the ACC is, is um, the SEC part two, right? It's like we've seen how the SEC, the support from the conference, from the universities, the money, the, the uh, facilities, the SEC network um, is now all really having the same effect in the ACC with the ACC network and just a success. Um, I, I think Virginia Tech and Florida State come down to a key statistic. And, and so I was kind of diving into that series. Both of these teams, when you look at them on paper, are pretty equal. I mean, you've got two great staffs with two great arms. Um, I was very worried about Virginia Tech's ability to hit earlier in the year. I called one of their games earlier in the season and they were hitting like maybe as a team 280. Well, that batting average now is above 300. They're hitting the ball as well as playing um, playing really good softball. Uh, if you look at Keely Rochard and Emma Lindley, those two pitchers have together, their whips are well under a one, which is huge to me. That That's, a, that's the key stat that I'm always looking at. Uh, Rochard's given up only six home runs. Uh, Emma's only given up four. Um, but the, and then of course you've got Catherine Sandercock and Danielle Watson for Watson. For me, the key component is looking at, uh, her free passes or base on ball. She needs to keep those low. Um, Sandercock's 18 and 0, so she's still undefeated. Um, but this is the, the key stats it comes down to. So as a team, Florida state has walked 170 times. They've struck out just 139. So far more walks than strikeouts. Now you flip over to Virginia Tech, 79 walks as a team, 120 strikeouts. So they're inverted. So it just shows that the offense for Florida State does a really good job. Their on-base percentage is is really good. Um, They just do a great job of uh, capitalizing on the freebie war, right? And Patrick Murphy says it all the time. If we win the freebie war, we're going to win the game. Um, Michaela, uh, Edenfield has just been outstanding for Florida state. Her numbers are you know, like off the charts. I was having written down here. She's hitting 359, 15 home runs, 43 RBIs. You know, she, the kid's just a stud. She's a, I call her a beast. Um, so, but that's the key stat. I think whoever wins the freebie war in this, uh, series is, is going to win the series. That's Michaela Enfield, FGCL, by the way, and she'll be mentioned later on in the podcast (laughs) as we talk with Michelle Smith from ESPN, stealing second here on Out of the Box. Michelle, we got to talk about Oklahoma. Everybody has to talk about Oklahoma. We can't ever talk about softball without discussing the Sooners. And I think the topic is, do we have film now? Because two weeks ago, we saw Baylor almost beat the Sooners. They really did have it. Oklahoma won it 3-1. This past weekend, you beat UAB 2-0. So what can teams that are going to see the Sooners down the road take from film on those games? Well, I think they need to pick apart every pitch that was thrown and every pitch that was uh, missed, (laughs) uh, fouled off, uh, wasn't hit squarely. 
and and figure out what was the uh, magic formula that kept them from putting uh, you know big crooked numbers up on the board. I, I you know I think it's for any power hitting team or any team in general. Um, there's always one point in the season where you have a little bit of a whoop, little little bit of a lull, right? And and when you're an opponent coming up against these hot offenses, you just you, you're just waiting. You're hoping that 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 game before you play them, you you just see them struggle to hit, and then you're like, boom, I know I got them. And then you attack them, you know, with off speeds, with pitches up in the zone. You got to pitch on the fringes. You know, this is a team. You break them down and you look at them. They are they see the ball very well. They identify the pitches very well. They're very open and they hit from a very open position to all fields. Like even pitches that they're driving the opposite way, the righties, they're like open in the, you know, stepping with the hip flying open. And, but that barrel stays through the, the, the zone so flat and so long that they give themselves the greatest odds of being able to, to catch that ball with the barrel when it shows up in the zone. So I think that coaches, if they're smart, they're going to go back and they're going to look at those two games and they're going to really look at how they pitched um, the sooner offense and, and kept the, the, the ball from flying out of the field. Cause that's really the key with them is, uh, you know, not making the mistakes and then giving up the big blast, which is unfortunately, you know, in the seventh inning, that's what happened to Baylor or fortunately for Oklahoma that they did do it, you know, depending on which side <laughs> of the game. You're on. <laughs> Looking at West out in the pac 12. Uh, one of the themes we talked about in the sec, one of the themes is that this year's a lot of the established aces are kind of getting hit a lot more than they have been in the past. And one of those out in Seattle with in Washington is Gabby Plain. She right now has a 4-7 ERA, 25 innings pitched in the in the Pac-12. Washington is three and six themselves. Um, what what do you make of the Huskies and then just in general that race out in the Pac-12? Well, I think Gabby's another one of those pitchers that she's an Olympian. She's got some experience. She didn't get to throw a lot in the Olympics. Um, she was around some other great pitchers on that Australian staff. But you know, she's a kid that needs some help in the bullpen. She doesn't have a she doesn't have a, a ace, you know, one B behind her to help her out. So, you know, she's probably a little bit more fatigued than what she needs to be. So she doesn't have as much, you know, run and and whip on her pitches. Uh, you know, it, it it's it's tough in today's time for some of these kids to really grab the bull by the horns and be like, Hey, I'm the ace. I want the ball every day. Cause we haven't taught them to do that. Right. We've taught them that, Oh, you're, you're going to throw either, you know, game one and three, or you're going to, you know, we, we, we we're limiting, we're more limiting to the uh, mentality and the physicality of the, the athletes nowadays. So I think with Gabby, it's, um, it's a little bit of everything. Um, I feel like for the PAC 12, it's, it's kind of the same thing. If you look at who's successful, they've got a couple of good arms in the circle. Right. And if you look at UCLA, what they're doing, Holly Acevedo is having like her best year ever. I mean, she's just been outstanding. And then when you dive a little deeper, what are those staffs doing? Well, they probably have good off-speed pitches, right? The pitchers that are successful. If then, if you look at, you know, Jordy ball, I mean, she throws with great velocity, you know, people are talking about her motion or mechanics, all this stuff. But to me, what sets up everything is she's got that great off-speed drop. That's really hard to identify. It blends in with her other pitches. And, you know, it's the variation of speeds that at any level is what makes it so difficult to hit pitchers. And so when you look at the PAC 12, you know, I look at Megan Faremo and, and Holly Acevedo and both of them have decent change-ups. They complement each other very well. And that's why UCLA is, is kind of cleaning up right now. 
Michelle, we've got two more things to ask you before we let you go because you've had an insane day and we want to let you, you know, go to bed. <laughs> I, I did want to give you a chance though, to preview Alabama, Florida, and really what is a crazy week for Florida because they've got Florida State coming up tomorrow and then Saturday, Sunday, Monday against Alabama. This is probably the most pivotal week of the season for the Gators. So what do you expect to see from both of these teams this weekend? Yeah, absolutely. And Tim Walton said it. He's like, you know, this, this is where we really get tested from from here on out. This is a huge week. Um, I think more so for Florida than it is for Alabama to really to really be tested at this level with Florida State Wednesday and then Bama coming into town. Um, you know, I think it all comes down to execution and consistent play, right? You can't give the freebies up. You've got to be really strong with making sure that you every every component, every, you know, your, your pitching aspect, your defensive aspect, and your hitting aspect, that they're all on time. So your, your pitchers are making the pitches when they need to make the pitches. Your defense is making the routine plays. And then maybe the spectacular double play when you really, really need it. And then the offense is, is getting the key hit. And, and, you know, it's like Murphy said against the, you know, the first loss against UGA is that you just, you know, Bama just didn't get the timely hit in game one. And, and, you know, that that's just the storybook of, of how to win or lose a softball game is that you've got to be able to put uh, runners um, on base and then be able to get them uh, in, you know, you, you can't score unless you touch all four. And, you know, we say that all the time to kids when we're doing camps and clinics and um, having fun with them, but, but that's really what it comes down to. I think this series, because neither team is a huge home run hitting team. I mean, Ali Shipman's had some really big home runs, but all in all, you know, neither of these clubs win or, you know, lose by the, by the long ball, like maybe a, a Georgia does or Mississippi state or some of the other clubs. But I, I think it's going to come down to uh, uh coaches calling, you know, taking a gamble with a, a hit and run or a button run, you know, just a little bit of trying to move the defense. The defense is already good. Well, try and get them off balance, try and get them, you know, miscommunicating. So I, th I think it's going to be fun. There's going to be a lot of strategy in uh, this series. I think Tim does a really good job of using his pitchers. He's, he's got high tower and then he kind of pitches by committee after, um, you know, you've got Fouts and Kilfoyle that are the, the two big guns for Alabama. So I think a lot of it's going to depend on how Fouts starts, um, how she can move her pitches through the zone. Um, and, and then I think for Kilfoyle, she's going to have to continue to be the Kilfoyle that we saw in game three with the, you know, the perfect game, really good down stuff, really good mix of speeds working from ahead. And when you do that, you know, whichever program can execute those assets uh, or aspects of the game, I think we'll, we'll be one that, that win the series. Wanted to give you an opportunity as well that we, uh, we lost a, a legend from the softball community with, uh, with Joan Joyce passing away from uh, FAU uh, a couple weeks ago and just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about her. Yeah, so Joan Joyce uh, is a good friend of mine, very, you know, special person near and dear in my heart, uh, supported a lot of my charities, and um, I, I can't say enough about her. She's, she's our sport. She's the history of our sport. And for every young athlete out there that doesn't know her or doesn't understand who she is, you have to get out the Google machine and look her up. Um, there's been some, as of late, uh, within the last year, a really good book written about her, just the type of athlete she was. She was not just a phenomenal softball player. She was on the LPGA for 17 years. She was an incredible basketball player. I mean, you named it just a, a great athlete at a time when women were not celebrated for being athletes. She taught me though, this, this is the thing I think about the most, my personal relationship with her. I remember the first time that I met her, I went and grabbed a ball, made her sign it. Cause I was like, Woo. Okay. So, you know, cause I, I just knew the, the legend that she was, even though I never saw her play or, you know, but I just, 
just heard all the stories of how great she was. So that was number one. But number two, she helped me with my drop ball. So I was more of a, um, and again, I didn't start to pitch. I was a sophomore in high school. So I had a lot to learn late and I was, you know, I studied physics and I was always curious, you know, I was very, very curious about why do pitches work? What makes a great MLB uh, pitcher, a great MLB pitcher. And I'd study Nolan Ryan and I, I, whatever I could be a sponge and learn, I would learn. And so I was constantly learning, but I was, I was a, a rise ball, more curveball pitcher being a lefty with that typical lefty run. And, and I would throw like a low outside fastball that would, at times it would cut out it'd cut in sometimes it'd cut down, but I knew going into the Sydney Olympics, because I usually threw against all the Asian teams, the Chinese who were number two in the world at the time and Japan who was, is obviously a, a great team. Um, I was, I, I needed a new look, you know? And so this is my advice always to even college pitchers. You have to come back with a new look every year. So going into the 2000 Olympics, I was trying to work on a drop ball. And I just, because I was more weight back and more upward um, oriented, you know, getting under pitches with my mechanics, I was having a hard time getting over the pitch to really get it to dive down. And I was out in Colorado, I was throwing to Michelle Gramacki, my catcher. And Joan stops by and, or, and Mac was like, Hey, Joni, you know, Smitty's trying to work on a drop ball. Can you show her something? And she goes, drop ball. That's easy. She's like, she grabs a ball. She shows me how to hold it. You know, she's like, you're going to throw a peel drop. Think of it as the opposite of a basketball jump shot. She's like, you play basketball? I said, yeah, I play basketball. She's like, all right, basketball jump shot. Keep your thumb over the ball and just rip it up. Pull it up as hard as you can. Throw it as hard as you can. And I promise you it's going to dive down. So literally like in 30 seconds, she taught me my drop ball. The ball was like, bam. It was just like smashing into the ground. I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Joni, I love you. Yeah. She's like, simple, make it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. And uh, so I went into the Sydney Olympics all of a sudden. And I kept that in my pocket, even though I was playing professionally in Japan, I kept that in my pocket and I pulled it whoop, pulled it out during the Sydney Olympics. And um, I still hold the uh, Olympic record for, I don't know what it is, 29, 30 innings, something like that without giving up an earned run. So, um, so anyway, so that's, that's my Joni Joyce story. And uh, so I feel like Joan, Joan owns that uh, Olympic record of not giving up an earned run um, because she taught me that drop ball. And, and I used that tremendously uh, during that Olympic uh, tournament and and then, you know, parlayed it in with my, uh, with my rise ball, but that's, that's Joan Joyce. That's the amazing teacher person that she was. Again, she supported my charity. She'd come up when I was raising money for a softball for hearts. And there's just the different charities I support in my uh, Tampa St. Pete area. So um, we'll be sorely missed just a great human being. Um, but I really hope people just uh, carry on her legacy because she deserves that. And, and our sport needs it. And say, working on it for uh, working on it for months and 30 seconds later bam this is how you do it oh okay got it <laughs> it's so easy yes uh, oh michelle smith joining us here on the out of box podcast michelle thank you so much for taking some time it's so good to see you and you know what we appreciate that you and beth are always around for the perfect games and i'm happy to report to everybody that beth and michelle will be back this weekend in gainesville so let's see you know what yes. happens yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're excited. We're excited to be back. Bimo and I love, uh, we love all things softball and always enjoy catching up with y'all as well. Well, thanks, Michelle. Good to see you. Bye guys. Thank you. So that was Michelle Smith, Tom. Always good to see Smitty. I, I really feel for her, you know, before we hopped on the interview, she told us about her day and I was like, lady, you need to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate you making time. Why uh, Why did you hop right. on with us? <laughs> Take you. a nap. <laughs> we are not that important. But we're really grateful to Michelle for hopping on. And I really love the story about Joan Joyce. Uh, a complete oversight on my part. 
didn't bring it up last week. That's my bad, but I'm really glad that we got to talk about it with Michelle. I mean, it was great to hear her talk because, you know, talking about all the other different sports that she played too, kind of like reminiscent of Babe Diedrichson from you mm. know, the early 1900s and, and being that type of a trailblazer is what, uh, what Joan Joyce was. And great to hear some, some great stories about her. Yeah, I remember listening to Seven Innings last week. They were talking about her playing on the LPGA Tour. She just like decided to play golf. Right. And was good at it and then went professional. Which, not same. No. Can't compare. <laughs> I can't imagine just deciding I'm going to go play golf and be good right away. <laughs> walk out 64. That's uh, All right. I've been playing golf not well for a long time. <laughs> uh, another thing we have in common. <laughs> Working together for six years. Our golf games are pretty similar. <laughs> uh, so thanks to Michelle. But now, Tom, it's time to get out the streamers and get the pomp and circumstance dialed to 11. Putting on the tuxes, getting ready to slap you, it's all gonna happen. (laughs) The boxies are back. We'll hand out some hardware when we return here on the Out of the Box Podcast. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Let's get on the red carpet. Let's take the pictures. It's time to give out some awards as we round 30 on the Out of the Box podcast. Gray Robertson and Tom Canterbury giving out prizes for midseason awards, Tom. It is the Boxies. Play the music. What a time to be alive. Yes, very excited. Boxy time. We've got all of the awards. We've got SEC Player of the Year. We've got National Player of the Year. We have FGCL player of the year there are a lot of nominees there who knows maybe maybe mac leonard get mac leonard's name out your mouth tom how dare you (laughs) stage a slap of me on the podcast no no one would ever slap no one would ever stage a slap in an award show you need to resign from the boxy academy forever get out (laughs) but first but first here's your award Play by play man you. of the year. Thank you very much. Oh, goodness. So many awards. Good time. Shall we get to the discussion? Because we've got a lot to talk about. We got so much. So much has happened. Okay. Let's begin with SEC player of the year. Now, keep in mind for the conference awards, we are going off of conference stats. I wish we weren't because it would be much easier going off overall stats. Conference stats, it's a complete chaotic mess. It is. If I look at the numbers for SEC player of the year, the names that stuck out to me in the conference rankings for categories, Chloe Malaulu at Mississippi State, Aaron Koffel at Kentucky, Jenna Johnson at Alabama, Haley Lee at Texas A&M, Daniel Gibson at Arkansas. There are some other people here and there, Zeta Pooney maybe as a case, but those are the five names that popped out to me. And I don't feel confident in any of those five being your eventual winner at the end of the year. Yeah, I mean... Not only that, there's a lot of big names that are not on that list. Yes, no Mia Davidson, no nobody from Florida. No I mean, Kayla Kowalik. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there is a lot of different people that could be on this list. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's kind of just similar to what we're going to talk about with pitcher in this conference. It's not that people are bad. It's just that, that there hasn't been anybody that has really separated themselves like we've seen in years past. So do you want to go first or you want me to? You go first and we'll alternate. Okay, I'm going to give it to Danielle Gibson from Arkansas. And here's why. In a year like this when we're quote-unquote only going off conference stats, it's hard not to think about the perception of overall stats. And Gibson's pretty solid. She's she's highly ranked in the sexy categories. Fourth in slugging, fifth in hits, third in RBIs, first in home runs. Her conference play batting average is at 400. Her overall batting average, though, like just dipped under 500. I think right now that would factor in a little bit with my voting. Think about how consistent she's been from out of conference to conference and how there really hasn't been a drop off. So my pick would be Danielle Gibson from Arkansas. Uh, well, I'm going to go with right now the statistically best player on statistically the best team. So I'm going to go with Jenna Johnson. Wow. Uh, At a girl, Jenna, because she has, uh, we have seen it. Obviously we, we see every, every at bat that she has, but her big hits have come at really crucial times for yes. Alabama this year. And the fact she does lead the conference in overall volume of hits as well. Um, like people like Malulu and, and Lee, I think they're going to be hurt by the fact that their teams are so low in the standings. So I, I think that that hurts their case. I'm, I'm just going to give it, you know, I'm, I'm basing it on team success and player success, Jenna Johnson. Yeah. I, again, we talked about this on the space. I think right now Jenna has a really good case at this moment. If she can keep it up, she can be in the hunt for SEC player of the year. Allie Shipman worked her way a little bit more back into the conversation last night. You know, now second in the SEC in conference play RBIs, but that's pretty much the only category in which she is ranked. So if she wants to get into the conversation, and we both think she can, yeah. it's got to be a more well-rounded case. If, if she wants to have a weekend where she hits like five or six homers and gets right in there, I'm, I'm fine with it. No, I'm here for it. Works for me. I, I will not, if it wants to be this weekend. Yeah, that it, it would be a great time to make that happen. FGCL player of the year. This is the toughest it's ever been. Remember last year we were sitting here and said, okay, Mac Leonard or Haley Lee. Right. That was it. Yeah. This year I've got 10 people wow. listed. Jeez. Potential nominees, Devin Howard at Liberty. And we can go over specific stats if we want mm-hmm. to discuss them further. Peyton Darnell at USC Upstate. Riley Boone at Oklahoma. Mac Leonard, back again. Hello, Merrill. Mm-hmm. Florida State. Michaela Edenfield, Florida State. Kimley Hawk at Mississippi State. You know, statistically maybe not the best on this list, but – She's kind of been the one pitcher that's worked for the Bulldogs this right. year. Ten and two record with on that team is impressive. Jasmine Dodd at Alabama State, our girl Bree Roper at Ole Miss, Allie Harrell at Marshall, Haley Lee at Texas A&M, and Kate Houston at App State. Wow, I mean, and looking at some of these numbers, the one like you mentioned, Allie Harrell at Marshall, hitting over five hundred still at this point in, in the season, crazy, incredible. Uh, and they've played the good Conference USA teams already early in conference play. Yeah. And I think she's only like been nominated for player of the week, maybe once, twice. Doesn't seem like, so, yeah. so she's not having just these huge breakout, but she's so consistent. It very, very impressive. And I said, Mac Leonard, Michaela Edenfield, our two finalists for this week, again, just tells you how stacked Oklahoma is that Riley Boone, not an everyday player for them. And, still, and probably not about to win this award either. No, but still putting up really good numbers, even, you know, playing, you know, not uh, every day. There's a lot of really good players on this on this list. For the impact it's been not only on her team, but nationally, I'm going to go with Michaela Edenfield. Edenfield. Boo! 
gets the win. Wow, has anybody ever been booed going up to? <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, though. I'm gonna have sung the praises all year. It, we saw bits and pieces of it in the summer, but I'm I'm impressed also with the Florida State staff and how they've developed her not just from what we saw this summer, but to become an even better player yeah. this season. It's impressive. She is right now, you know, fifth in the NCAA in home runs and ninth in RBIs, playing yeah. her first real year of college softball. Mm. And then has had, similar to Jen Johnson, her her home runs and her hits have come at huge times. Yes, we recall the UCLA home run in Clearwater, obviously the home run in Tuscaloosa against Alabama. She has had multiple first inning home runs and ACC plays, so she set the tone as well. Mm-hmm. Very impressive. But I'm going to give it to Allie Harrell because the numbers themselves are just gargantuan. Yeah. 506, a 650 OBP, that is second in the country. The only person better is Jocelyn Alla, who has walked <laughs> every time she right. bats. Who's pretty good, by Yes. The way. I don't know if anyone's heard. This is a ridiculous stat line for Marshall's Allie Harrell. And so Allie is my FGCL midseason player of the year. But again, much tougher this year than it was last year. Absolutely. National player of the year. Should we do it at the same time? It's Jocelyn. Jocelyn Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only other potential nominee is Bailey Klingler at Washington because she's really been the only person to drive in runs for that team. But Allah's got the sentimental support as well you know, catching the career home run record. So right. Pretty easy. Yeah. Kind of uh, this year plus a career award. for Yeah. Jocelyn. Yeah. So we'll see how it changes at the end. Yes. SEC freshman of the year. This one a little bit tougher potential people, Lair Boutte, Tennessee, uh, Nelia Peralta at Auburn and Lexi Delbury, although eh, probably not, but she's at Florida and she's been mainly better in non-conference play than in conference play. Yeah. I'm going to go with Lair Boutte at Tennessee, but I would love for this list to get longer. I'd love to see more potential nominees. I'd love for some Alabama freshmen to work their way into the conversation. There's a couple of Alabama freshmen that I have, I think have a legit shot of getting into the conversation. If they have a good second half of the conference, Uh, Dallas Goodnight, Aubrey Barnhart are both, I think on that list. I'm also going Boutte, by the way. National freshman of the year, uh, based on hype, Jordy Ball. Savvy Pola at UCLA is sneakily having a fantastic season if you look at her stats and when you know similar to jenna when she's getting the hit she had some big home runs this past weekend against oregon but someone will have to do something really really special or she's gonna have to really fall off for jordy ball not to win this this award uh at the end of the year and i think she's definitely got it to your midway point yeah i agree jordy ball your midseason national freshman of the year here we go oh my gosh midseason sec pitcher of the year and I get to go first. Yeah. Damn it. All right. Potential <laughs> nominees. Mackenzie Herzog, Montana Fouts, you know, statistically still has some right. has some cachet. Maddie Pinta at Auburn, Elizabeth Hightower at Florida, and vaulting her way in after a perfect game on Monday Night Softball is Lexi Kilfoyle. And now we get to the discussion part. I'm not going to name my winner yet, Tom. Let's talk this out because yeah. everybody is spotty in certain areas. You know, you've got – Hightower, ninth in ERA, second in strikeouts, second in wins. Maddie Penta, 10th in ERA, first in wins, but she's lost a couple games. Fouts is first in strikeouts by like 30, but, you know. And second in wins, just that ERA. Right, the ERA is outside the top 15. Right. Uh, Lexi Kilfoyle, kind of in the middle of everything. Mackenzie Herzog hasn't pitched enough, but the numbers are really good. I think the problem with this award, and, and something we just talked about with Smitty, if you ask me which pitcher in the SEC is pitching best right now, it's Ashley Rogers, but I can't put her on this list because she just hasn't thrown enough 
for yeah. me to consider her. So of these nominees, Tom, I really have no idea. Well, it's it's one thing, and when we talk about Montana, is that the ERA obviously higher than than, than what she wanted to be, and she's had she's had some bad innings, and that's what we talked about with Schmitty, what we've talked about as well. But she's had so many one two three where she's been absolutely dominant, and then having you know that lead in both K's and then still second in wins, right? It, it's kind of, she is kind of when we talk about her quote unquote struggling, it's struggling to the standard that she has set. It's so freaking high. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot of pitchers that in this conference that would love to have had the season Montana Faust has had so far. And, and there's a lot of coaches that wishes that wish they had a pitcher that was able to do that. So uh, I, I think you have to put a little bit of perspective on it. Um, and that she hasn't, it's not like she's been God awful. She's had a couple of bad days. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm in agreement, but so. you know, when you look at these awards, I, I try and kind of think like the coaches do. Yeah. And to me, they're probably the three sexy pitching stats that you, you want to vote on, right? ERA strikeouts and wins, but no one has all three of them. Exactly. The only person who is somewhat close is Elizabeth Hightower. And so I think right now I would take, I, she was going to be comfortably, I think my mm-hmm. vote before last night. Lexi Kilfoyle made like a remarkable charge, yes. like 50 furlongs back and all of a sudden neck and neck at the Kentucky Derby. She, she was that gift. Like, where did she come from? She was the gift of Big Bird bouncing, you know, kicking, yes. kicking open the door, coming in. <laughs> so I think right now, based on the full body of work, I still have to lean Elizabeth Hightower, but I don't feel good about it. Yeah. And that to me means that everything that we're saying right now means nothing. This award. Thanks for listening to the podcast. <laughs> this award will be decided in the next four weeks because right, right now nobody's made a, a strong enough case yet to right. be out in front. Correct. Um, and if you are looking again at the, the three sexy categories, as you said, no one has all three of them. Uh, so I am going to go with the pitcher that historically and would still be most people's pick if they had to have one pitcher to pitch for their life. Montana Fouts. Wow. Okay. I'm cool with it. Okay. Well, good. I'm cool with it. Yeah. I mean, there, I don't think there's a wrong answer. Right. With this. There may not be a right answer. It's going to be there's, kind of the problem. We just kind of roll with it. Yeah. Let's go with National Pitcher of the Year. There are no, you will notice, SEC pitchers no. on the nominees list I put here. I just put some some people who've caught my eye this season. Uh, Hope Troutwine at Oklahoma's had a good year. Jordy Ball, again, you know, has been really strong. Keely Rochard at Virginia Tech keeps winning. Uh, she's not on the list, but Catherine Sandercock, undefeated, still at Florida State. ERA still under one, I believe. And uh, Georgina Korak, who's who's my pick. I'm going to you know spoil myself. Okay. I'm I'm taking the South Florida ace Korak. You know, a couple days ago, as of this recording, fifth in ERA, first in wins by a lot, first in strikeouts by a lot. She has been by far the most consistent pitcher in the country, and she has had to be because USF has nobody else. Right. And that's, I'm going to go with you on that. I'll, I'll stick with that. But I would not be shocked if by the time we get to the end of the year, if there's a few more people that are not even on these these nominations lists that will come in and, and overtake it. But I think you got to give Cora Cardew for what she's been able to do so far. For sure. SEC Coach of the Year. Halfway through, we're going to have to go with our good friend, Mickey Dean. I agree. There we go. Because I thought they were going to be terrible. Yeah, I did not think they were good. I don't know if anyone heard. I said they were going to be last in this conference. <laughs> Worse than South Carolina, which that looks terrible right now, by the way. I was uh, right about that. You were you were correct. Did not know where the offense was going to come from. We still had questions pitching-wise, and Mickey Dean has done a great job of 
answering those questions. Yeah, I've been really impressed. In particular, like you said, with the offense and their ability to not just score, but to do so with the long ball, which was just not a part of their team at all yeah. last year. So there we go. National Coach of the Year. I will go first. I'm looking at the national rankings, thinking about it, thinking about it. We're going back. We're going to the well. Pete DeMore oh, wow. at Virginia Tech. Now, yes, they did not get the wins on the road at Alabama, but I want to credit Coach DeMore, and Patrick Murphy did multiple times in our interviews, for scheduling that matchup. Sure. They have challenged themselves in the non-conference. They have put themselves in a position where now – as long as they don't get swept by terrible ACC teams, they are hosting not only regionals for the first time ever, but supers for the first time ever if they get out of regionals, which they will play at home. So Virginia Tech has not necessarily exceeded my expectations, but they're about to reach something that they've never done before in program history. And because of that, I go to my guy Pete DeMore as midseason national coach of the year. If, if you're going along those type of guidelines for your coach of the year, I think Kate Johan at Northwestern has a really good case. You know, a, a team that, you know, Big Ten, people that know the Big Ten were not put, picking to win that league or even maybe in the top two or three. We were taking Michigan. Everybody right. was. Yeah. Uh, so Northwestern right now at number eight uh, is in the latest polls is really, really impressive. But as I look at the overall rankings – there's only one team with a zero on mm. their name. Uh, and I think at this point that they've had such a great year, the offense on another level, and then the pitching, as you said, Hope Troutwein and, and Jordy Ball, you know, in the top 10 in ERA nationally, that'll help when you're scoring 10 runs too. Uh, I got to give it to Patty. Right. Patty's going to be my, my coach of the year so far. Uh, congrats to her. Never yeah. won a thing She's in her that, life. That plucky underdog. <laughs> One little shout out to an under the radar candidate, Laura Berg at Oregon State. You know, they're a team that probably won't win the Pac 12 this year, but, you know, they're creeping up the rankings. Their RPI is not terrible. They're going to be a really tough two seed. So, yeah. Good job to Coach Berg and to the Beavers for being a, a very difficult team and a better team that I think a lot of us were anticipating coming into the year. 100% agree. SEC biggest surprise team. I'm going to go with Auburn. Okay, you're going with Auburn. Yeah. I'm going to go with Mississippi State. You know, I'm That's true. Because I give, you know, I give the award to Mickey, but I don't want to spread the love. And Mississippi State, not only being as successful as they are at this point, you know, we thought they'd be good, but I, I wasn't sure that they would be able to do what they're doing right now. But stealing some of the games in conference where really, if you look at it on paper, they had no business stealing. Right. They have won a road game at Tennessee and a road game at Florida. Yeah, That's impressive. That's stuff that can help build your tournament resume. So what Mississippi State has done, maybe not necessarily overall, but weekend to weekend, Mississippi State has surprised me in conference play the most. Because again, look at what they did in the non-conference. There's no reason that team should go into Knoxville and beat Tennessee by five runs. Right. 100%. So Mississippi State gets my vote. Okay. National biggest surprise team. I think had Auburn been able to pull off the series win against Florida, they'd have a case to be the national biggest surprise. But Florida was able to keep them down, so I'm not going to give it to Auburn. For mine, uh, I think I'll give it to Northwestern. Okay, Northwestern. I'm going to stick with the Big Ten and go with Nebraska. Oh! Nebraska. They've got the home run 
second home run leader in the country. So Billy Andrews is second. The only reason she's not first is because Rutgers, I believe, walked her 10 times <laughs> last weekend, which honestly, fair. Right. I get it. They beat Michigan for the first time ever in Ann Arbor and then did it again like 30 minutes later. So Nebraska is a team to watch out for. They're playing well. They are my biggest surprise team because coming into the year, I never thought we would ever discuss the Huskers on this podcast, but here we are. So there we go. Those are your SEC awards, national awards, and now time to get to the Alabama awards. Mm -hmm. Alabama player of the year. This is really hard because who do you pick? Just kidding. It's Allie Shipman. (laughs) Allie Shipman leads in all of the offensive categories. And I think because you know, Montana and Lexi have had flashes of brilliance. They've had one or two tough outings, but more importantly for, for this award, they haven't pulled away from each other. Mm-hmm. Allie doing what she's doing makes her the obvious candidate here, not just at the plate, but also defensively leadership wise. And just like, frankly, person wise, I love talking with Allie before all these games. Sure. Allie Shipman is my midseason Alabama player of the year. And I agree. I, I think you got to go with Allie. Just, you know, you can really tell, what she has brought to this team and it's been a, you know, it's not, not that the team was not together to begin with, but when Allie came in, just fit right in and help actually galvanize the people that were already here. It has been really impressive to watch her be able to come in and do this. Most improved player at the midseason point for Alabama, Tom. I think I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Lexi Kilfoyle. That was not where I thought you were going to go with that. Yeah. I'm going to go Lexi Kilfoyle and not, and not again, we have been, shouting at how good Lexi Kilfoyle has been for a long time. Uh, but the fact that she was able to really show it out here, and I'm, I hate that the injury is kind of keeping her from being able to bat, but we saw what she did, you know, in Arizona and how, how... – Still has the best batting average against ranked teams at 429. <laughs> and we'll probably hold on to that for yes. the rest of the year. But you had that and then just showing this weekend, especially against one of the best offenses in the conference – uh, what she can do pitching wise and hopefully being able to take some of that pressure off of Montana Fouts moving forward. So I, I, I'm going to go with Lexi. I'm going to go with Cat Grill. And right. I, I could argue for either Jenna Johnson or Cat Grill. That was kind of what I was thinking. You know, Jenna, yeah. we knew how good she was. She's excelled this year. But Cat last season, you know, performed when KB Sides was out. She was kind of thrown out in right field and did, did solid and then kind of just became the pinch running person in the late stretch of the season this year she started kind of as the pinch running person when savannah woodard got hurt cat girl came in took advantage of her chances sav was okay she got starts again sav you know fluttered a little bit cat girl came out and when she got chances yet again she took advantage so to me what cat girl has been doing on a consistent basis and her growth as a player Hmm. especially at the plate her ability to slap to bunt best bun of the year, I think maybe by anybody mm-hmm. was laid down last night, but also to hit away and hit for power and show that aspect of her game to me makes her the most improved player on the team. All right. I like okay. It. okay. We've got two more awards. The Alabama newcomer of the year. Hmm. Whom could it be? Or do we want to spread the love? I'm going to spread the love. Okay. I'm going to give it to Prangy. I'm going to give it to Prangy again. Obviously this is kind of like a tandem award with, with Allie and Ashley Prangy just because that little clump at two, three in the order, right. it just works. And if one of them doesn't get it, the other one does. And that duo is really producing in the big games. 
you know, we talked about it. Lexi, yes, statistically has the best batting average, but of people who have a certain number of at-bats, Prangy leads BA against ranked teams by like 50 points. Right. It's astronomical. So she's been clutch. Shipman's been driving people in. So this is kind of a tandem award, but we've already given Allie player of the year. So I'm giving Ashley Prangy newcomer of the year. All right. Well, because you gave Ashley Prangy the award for the newcomer and uh, we've already given Allie award, as president of the fan club, ah. I feel as though I need to represent Dallas Goodnight as the newcomer of the year. Uh, still trying to really settle in, I think, as the leadoff hitter. It's it's where we all expected her to be at, at, at some point this season. Uh, and I think she is going to probably be that moving forward. So uh, she's going to have to continue to do that. But she has shown those flashes already, uh, the speed that she has on the bases. And then when, when she figures out which tool to use at the at which time mm -hmm. and is able to find that out consistently which is your only the only way to do that is it's to continue to get reps and continue to play so uh, i i feel, unless you're caleb bro right well yeah <laughs> but you know we go we all can't be caleb bro coming in but uh i mean i i i can see it for dallas and, and i know it's coming and, and she's already shown it some and by the end of the year i really expect her to be outstanding as the love continues to be spread we love you dallas good night i also again just very fun person to talk with before games also by the way megan bloodworth hit a grand slam her first pitch so let's not forget that <laughs> as um as inspired the best chant we've heard this year we want blood it's terrifying <laughs> uh, final award alabama's most important player going forward this is always the most interesting one because we look at this in the purview of you want to win an SEC championship. You want to win an SEC tournament, potentially. And you want to win a national championship. You'd love all three, but you want to win right. some part of that. <laughs> Who's the most important player going forward? Maybe not even the most obvious mm -hmm. to try and accomplish those goals. Well, I'm going to go with the obvious. Okay. I'm going to say Montana Fouts. Okay. Again, we, we've talked about it at nauseum, but you know she's, she's going to have to bring back the Montana form consistently uh, for Alabama to get where they want to be, you know, because Lexi Kilfoyle, as much as I'd love it, probably not going to throw a perfect game every time. She gets that would be hilariously that would be, awesome. That'd be awesome. But, you know, for Alabama to reach the goals they have, they need Montana Fouts to be Montana Fouts. And so, I, I, and she can obviously do it. It's not like she's been bad. She just hasn't been at that ridiculous standard that she's already set for herself. Uh, and I know she's, she's going to strive to get back there. I'm totally in agreement with you. So I am going to use this opportunity to talk about another player, Kaylee Tao. To me, the three-time All-American is hitting 271. She has also shown flashes, but it, it's been inconsistent at times this year. Mm -hmm. To her credit, you know, when she's gotten hits, they have, for the most part, been clutch. 23 hits this year, 22 RBI. So for outside of the South Carolina series, the hits have been few and far between, but each one has been critical. Right. However, if she can up that batting average, get it about to 300, and unlock even more of that consistency. You pair her with Shipman, Prangy, a Bailey Dowling who's coming on, and then you add really good Kaylee Tao, this offense excels to another level. Yeah. So to me, Kaylee Tao is very, very important for Alabama moving forward the rest of the year. And, you know, my customary shout out to the other pitchers, Torrance and Salter, because they've got to take care of business in the games in which they throw so that right. Fouts and Kilfoyle don't have to get any cheap innings in midweeks or, you know, when it's a 13 to two game in conference play, if that ever happens, that's very important as well. The other thing is too, with those midweek games, Alabama doesn't, when you're looking at that resume, Alabama doesn't need to have any bad losses. There are the boxies. There you go. 
Well done, everyone. The week five big games. So we already talked about the one tonight. Notre Dame pulls off a huge upset over Northwestern three to two. In the midweek, three big ones. Florida State at Florida. Huge. Beth and Michelle will be there. Kentucky at Louisville. Oklahoma State at Wichita State. All very exciting games. I can't wait to track, Tom. Let's look at the weekend. As usual, Tom, let's each pick a series. What catches our eye? on what is a loaded slate. And I'm going to do it with the caveat of taking out Virginia Tech at Florida State, although we can say a word on that series yes, too. Like, yeah, it's loaded. We already talked to it with Schmitty about uh, Virginia Tech, Florida State. So that's going to be a heck of a, a series in the conference and the ACC. Well, I think, you know, a, a team that we discussed with your bracketology, Arizona State traveling to Eugene to take on Oregon. It's a big weekend series. That's really huge. I like Northwestern at Ohio State. Ohio State is a team that was just on the fringe of the bracketology top 20 list. Northwestern is a team that is apparently now coming off a loss to Notre Dame. So what does that look like in Columbus? And how does Northwestern respond after a really good showing to start against Michigan and then losing game three, now losing to Notre Dame? Where is their headspace right Right. now? But of course, we're going to pick it in a minute. The biggest series here is Virginia Tech, Florida State. And it's the series that honestly, I cannot wait to watch. I know we're going to be on the air a lot. I'm probably going to have the laptop showing Virginia Tech, Florida State, because this is one of those series that will directly impact so many things, conference races, seeding, because they play multiple times. Right. If you're either one of those teams, you've got to avoid the sweep. That's the most important Absolutely. Yeah, I think especially if you're Virginia Tech, you can rationalize losing that series 2-1 and not lose too much overall ground nationally, but you can't get swept. Okay. Shall we head home? Let's do it. We've got a lot coming up. We got picks. We've got off the wall. Tom will suplex me into the ground <laughs> after already slapping me. This is not a good podcast. <laughs> Somewhat violent. For my health. <laughs> That'll be when we return. We're about to head home here on the Out of Box Podcast. We'll be right back. Yes, we're, we're, we're getting sent home and we're saying, hold on. <laughs> That's something I got to pop the knee. <laughs> I, I tried to uh, yesterday as we record on Monday for Alabama, Georgia, Jim Dunaway from the next round was here. And so I, I went down to go chat with him, hopped over a row of seats to get to where he and Emily Petek were sitting. Yeah. And I felt it. I was like, oh no, I'm oh, too yeah. young to be mm. feeling that. Yeah. That's not good. <laughs> Try when you get to 42, see what you, what did you feel like. It's time to head home. Gray Robertson, Tom Canterbury. A lot that we've covered here in this show. What we've done, we started at the plate, looked at Alabama, advanced to first, did our best with the SEC. At this point, the segment's almost not even fun because I really don't even know how to talk about these teams because it changes every week. Everybody has become Kentucky. Everyone's an enigma at this point. However, the segment was great because we have bracketology, and that'll be moved back into the rounding third portion of the show next week. We also had FGCL Player of the Week. Then Michelle Smith stole second with us. We rounded third, did the boxies. Now it's time to put our money where our mouth is as we head home and make some picks. We've got out-of-conference series. We've got SEC series. But first, Tom, we begin with a tradition unlike any other. Hello, friends. Oh, what a Masters this has suddenly become. As we record today, Tiger Woods has said he will play. Some guy named Tiger is going to be there. Like a year ago, the man almost died. His leg literally crushed 
They were wondering if he's going to be able to walk again. And now he's going to walk Augusta. And I believe him when he says he believes he can win. Yes. You know why? Because he's done it a lot. And he's got the (laughs) mental fortitude to block out anything else. And he's also won a U.S. Open on a broken leg before. That is true. So all that being said, Tom, let's make our pick for the Masters. All right. You go first. You know, you won the week. In fact, I'll get into the standings in a minute, but this is a little bit outside that. Go ahead. Well, we remember last time Tiger won the Masters, I picked it. Yeah, that did happen. It was documented. So you could do it again? Yesterday, I said no way I would pick him. After listening to him talk today, I was like, huh, maybe. Maybe, maybe <laughs> so. I just, I can't. I mean, if, he, if he'd have been able to play a couple of, of tournaments before this one, I would yeah. probably would. But I can't. I'm going to go with John Rahm. He's been the, mm. seem, seems to be in big time tournaments over the last couple of years. He's been the most consistent elite player that there's been John Rob. I'm going to go with JT. I love it. I, I hope you're right. My other pick would be Scotty Scheffler who is winning like literally every tournament he is playing right now. Mm-hmm. But Justin Thomas wants this real bad. Honestly though, with golf, sometimes if you want it too bad, sometimes I can hurt you. So I, I hope that, you know, he, he doesn't get himself into some trouble trying to be overly aggressive, but my pick is Justin Thomas for the masters. All right. Okay. Let's go into the softball picks. Here's the leaderboard. Tom has 12. Gray has 11. Tom got four series right last week. Gray got three right. Tom did get the Northwestern series, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Florida. I got Florida, Arkansas, and Alabama. So let's pick some softball series. All right. And we start in Tallahassee by the portal, Virginia Tech at Florida State. Can we tell your boy Pete not to drive through the portal and screw everything up? Who knows what will befall this country? (laughs) If the portal is opened again, no, keep it closed. So I go first because I'm in the, you league. go first because you won the week. Uh, all right. Uh, I am going to go Virginia tech two one, that one, two punch of Rochard and, and Limley. I think they're going to be able to get two of them Florida state because of the, the offense. We'll get to them once, but I, I think, I think Virginia tech's for real. They've found the offense and I think they can go on the road and get the win. I'm hundred percent with you. The offense is playing well, the pitching staff. It's so, it's so tough to beat Rochard and Lemley. They're both pitching really well. I, I agree with you that Florida State will get a game because they they win these kind of games. You know, when we were looking earlier at Florida State's resume, the most impressive part about it is their 9-0 and record against the top 50 in the RPI. So they don't lose these kinds of games. They right. lose to the Virginias and the Pitts and the Boston Colleges. But I, I think this week, Virginia Tech is going to be too good. So I'm with you, 2-1 Hokies. Now let's move on to the SEC series and go to Lexington, Ole Miss at Kentucky. The enigmaness of the Kentucky Wildcats seems to have spread to the entire conference this year. I have a uh, stronger grasp on Kentucky than I do most other teams of the league. Very weird. This is an odd, odd year in that way. I think Kentucky has the capability of sweeping Ole Miss, but I think the Rebels will be able to get one. So I'm going to go 2-1 Kentucky. That's what I've got as well. Kentucky 2-1. Wow. Again, I mean, I said it earlier, I can't pick Ole Miss to get swept after calling them one of the teams that will be toughest to sweep. True, that's correct. That being said, you know, Ole Miss's pitching staff showed me something a little bit this weekend against Arkansas, you know, being able to hold down the offense uh, as well as they did in game one and then a little bit in game two. Game three kind of went off the rails. But, you know, if they can replicate that, they can get a game in Lexington. Auburn at Arkansas. If you're an Alabama fan – I think you are pulling. You kind of want Auburn to. You're pulling to, for Auburn to win the series. 
Ah, I can't. What? No. I, I know. How dare wanna, I? I don't want to do that. But I'm not only pulling for it. I think it's going to happen. I'm going to say Auburn goes on the road and wins 2-1. Well, our first disagreement, I'm going to take <laughs> Arkansas 2-1. If half is as good this weekend as she was to close out the series against Ole Miss, that's a really good sign for the Razorbacks. And Auburn's offense slowly getting a little bit worse as the series went on. Like they had a great closing stretch in game two against Florida, but for the right. most part, they were bamboozled by the quote-unquote others outside of Elizabeth Hightower. I'm going to take the Hogs 2-1. Well, this is this is my last last-ditch effort for Auburn. So if if Arkansas beats them, then we'll say, okay, Auburn's kind of come back down completely to earth. Tennessee at Georgia. Huh. Now we both admitted on the radio that we felt like we, in power rankings terms, had underrated the dogs. Right. I think that Kerpix is a better pitcher than I expected. Than what I saw in film, uh, her potential is through the roof. And if Chelsea Wilkinson, the pitching coach for the dogs, can continue to develop her, she could become a Mary Wilson Avant by the end of her career. That being said, a lot of this series for me, Tom, and you know, you have to go first, but a lot of it depends on how much Ashley Rogers can pitch this weekend. And I would think that after a couple of weeks of getting her back in, maybe it's going to be more of a let her loose type weekend for Ashley Rogers. If that is the case, I think Tennessee would have the advantage, but I have to see that before, before I'm going to pick that. Georgia wins 2-1 at home. Dang it. I thought that was going to be my bold prediction. Oh, wow. I'm taking Georgia 2-1. Every time anybody's gotten to the top of the standings, they've lost a game. True. Or yeah. they've lost a series. Nobody's ever just stayed there. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of what I'm going with. And again, that Georgia offense, they'll, they'll find ways. All right. Can Missouri take the sweep against South Carolina and use it as fuel when they go on the road to Mississippi State at News Park? Mm. Mississippi State coming off of a series loss to Tennessee, but I, I think they played really well in the win. I would love to pick it if I'm Missouri. I had Missouri number two in my in my pre preseason standings, but I again I I jumped off and burned the bandwagon. Just I'm... like the unsub and the <laughs> criminal minds that we were watching before we recorded. Correct. Uh, so all that being said, at home, I think Mississippi State finds a way to win it. And I'll say two one Mississippi State. Same. Wow. I thought I thought for sure you were gonna take Missouri. No, because the the issue with Missouri has been the pitching. And right now it is clear that Mississippi State is an opportunistic offense collectively. You know, they've got a couple of players who are good consistently, you know, as well as Missouri pitched against South Carolina. That is not, to me, a signal that things are fixed. So I'm going to take Mississippi State to win this series 2-1. Missouri can change a lot of minds, though, with a series win or a sweep Yeah, in Starkville. Two more to go, LSU at Texas A&M. Nothing that has happened the last couple of weeks has made any sense with LSU. Does this win the volatility award? The both teams can sweep, both teams can win the series? Yes, any of the four possible scenarios could happen in this situation. To kind of go along with that, I'm going to pick my first sweep, and I'm going to pick LSU to sweep Texas A&M. Wow! Because it would make zero sense for it to happen, so I think that's why it will happen, because that's what LSU does. No, Herzog gets a game. LSU 2-1. All right. A&M is, is rested. You know, they just played Abilene Christian. True. And they're playing uh, at home. So I, I think they find a way to get a game. I, I am going to take LSU to win the series. If they lose this series, uh, we need to have a major conversation about the Tigers. Yeah, 100%. Finally, Alabama at Florida. Monday night softball. 
big stage, bright lights, all three games on national television, all three games on radio. We've got a guest coming into the booth with us on Sunday. BMO, Smitty, they're there. I'm sure a lot of our media friends from other outlets will be coming into town. I, I haven't asked them. I bet the In the Circle guys are coming. Uh, Justin McLeod, who knows? He's always roving around. Everyone's going to be there. There is a lot riding on this, Tom. And last time Alabama went to Gainesville, they got a sweep. What happens this year? Well, and then also, not, and we've talked about somewhat of Florida's struggles, but at the same time, they're still a top 10 RPI team. Yes. They're still an, an outstanding ball club going down to Gainesville. Would love to pick a sweep. Will be over the moon excited if Alabama is able to get one. I don't think I can pick it just because of the, the strength of Florida and still a little bit of the inconsistency for Alabama at this point of the season. Uh, I think Alabama has the capability of doing it, uh, but I'm going to say Alabama wins the series, but it's 2-1. I'm with you. Yeah. yeah I, you know, this is a Florida team that is so different from 2019. Then they were relying a lot on the power. Even their one slapper in 2019, Jade Carraway, really like wasn't an actual slapper. You know, you've got now a real X factor for Florida and Kendra Falby, who will wreak havoc on the bases if she reaches. The strikeout numbers are creeping up a little bit in conference play, and the batting average has gone down. But when she is on, that absolutely messes you up if you're a defense and you're a pitching staff. So I think having that X factor will help Florida be more successful offensively than they were in 19. I've still got Alabama winning the series because I don't, even though I picked her for my midseason pitcher of the year, I don't really trust Elizabeth Hightower right now to pitch shutout softball against an offense that is feeling itself like Alabama is. We'd be remiss not to mention as well the Scholar Wallace factor. Yes. And uh, this this is going to be a storyline. It is. Absolutely. There is the familiarity. Nothing that Montana or Lexi throw to Skyler will probably be a surprise. And Montana and Lexi know what to throw to Skyler because they faced her in scrimmages. Right. So that is going to be interesting. Honestly, <laughs> from a media perspective, a little fun. It is interesting. And she is the best player for Florida by far you know, in terms of ability as of right now and in terms of what statistically she's putting up. That is going to be another storyline and something else you can be looking for. But like you said, everybody, I think, tends to look at it where, you know, Skylar knows what the pitches are coming. But just like you said, the pitchers know what Skylar does as well. Yeah. So it, it's going to be – it may end up being a wash overall, but we'll, we'll see. It's definitely going to be something that's going to be talked about. Yeah, and I, I think the one other thing to factor in, which All-American breaks out this weekend? Is it Charlotte Eccles for Florida? Is it Kaylee Tao for Alabama? Because both are underperforming right now as a whole, and we know what they're both capable of. Mm -hmm. So which one of those two has a big weekend to help her team is, is another big question. I nominate Kaylee Tao. I, I would vote for <laughs> Kaylee Tao on right. alabamavotes.gov or whatever the promo yes, is. correct. Uh, okay, it's get. I'll tell you what, it's gonna be a great series. I can't wait for fun. it. A lot of excitement. I'm sure it's sold out. And if not, then Bama fans, go get those last few tickets, please, <laughs> and make the trip down with us. Yes, we'll caravan on. <laughs> It'll be great. We'll go by the Buckies. It'll be fun. <laughs> That's it for SEC picks. And now, Tom, it's time for off the wall. Yes. So we're gonna give you a chance to to talk WrestleMania at the end because I want to make sure that we get to a couple things here. Okay. First, the strike zone conversation. Mm. We talked with Michelle Smith, but we have a couple thoughts that, that we'd like to add in as well. I'll let you start. The bottom of the zone is a thing. And if if we can't see it, there needs to be something done to where we can because it is it's really detrimental. Again, as I talked with, with Michelle Smith, you know, it's hard enough to throw a strike when you know what the strike zone is and and not let it get hit by the some of the elite 
players that you're playing against. If you don't know what the strike zone is, or you know what the strike zone is, but it's half of what it should be, then you're making a extremely difficult job near impossible. And it and it's not the game that we want to see. We don't want to see a game where you're just sitting up there and watching batters not swing or you know getting that opportunity to hit that one pitch per at bat that ends up being uh, you know batting practice fastball because that's the only thing that's being called a strike. It's very frustrating that a pitch that is a strike in the second inning all of a sudden is not a strike in the fifth inning. It's not fair to the athletes. Uh, and it, it's not a situation where umpires, yes, I know umpires make mistakes, they're human, and that's part of the game, but this is something that's happening consistently across the board, not just in the SEC, but everywhere in college softball. You know, there's a reason why they don't have a K zone at the World Series because it shows you how bad the umpires are. There's something's got to be done about it. I think that while I agree with the compliments that we gave Cameron Ellison, because I think he did umpire a really good game on Monday in a lot of ways, not just with his zone, but the way that he appeared to explain to Patrick Murphy what the call was on the Megan Bloodworth hit by pitch and what the review scenarios were. I thought he handled the game really well. It should be a world where we can talk about all three umpires equally after a weekend. There shouldn't be huge differences and variations between everybody. I'm going to be honest. I, Again, I just want a bigger strike zone. I am okay with the strikeout to Allie Shipman looking being called a strike if it's being called a strike for everybody all the time. That was literally the only time it was right. a strike the entire game. That's why we got upset about that because yeah. if it's not called consistently, then what are we doing? We can't pick and choose when the strike zone gets big or not. So we need that consistency there. I am for bigger strike zones because that is what the game needs. Every other advantage in this sport goes to offense. Why do we add one more? But if you're going to go with a regular strike zone or even a little smaller strike zone, just make sure it's consistent. Don't let your strike zone be the story would be all I would say. And again, this isn't just Alabama games. Uh, This isn't just two Alabama. We saw, I think, two times Alabama batters should have struck out. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, both times balls were called. And actually, both times the batters had RBIs. That's so, you, yeah, that's what you do. You take advantage when you're given that extra opportunity. Right. And we've seen it in other games as well. It's just something that has to be addressed. I know it's not just an SEC issue. It's a little bit national as well. But it it is particularly visible in the SEC because so many of our games are on TV. Right. And that just has to change. Well, and it's, it's something that I've, I've mentioned, you know, I think it's a issue across all of college sports, especially is that the officials have not evolved and improved along the same lines that the athletes have. And it's, it's not a fair situation for the athletes that they're not being officiated properly. It's really what we saw. There were some really poorly officiated basketball games in the tournament this year. Yeah. It can decide who the champion is. Cameron Ellison's game on Monday should be the rule, not the exception. Agreed. Agreed. Again, props to Cameron Ellison. Yes. I liked him coming in and I still do with he's going out. So good work. Can't wait to be really mad at him at some point this year. Uh, don't jinx it. <laughs> okay. Time for regular off the wall. I'm going to yes. go first. Okay. Then, you know, we'll, we'll dive in. So Cause, let's, cause my, I have, a, I have one that's a little bit different than what we normally do as well. Okay, so. cool. Let's look at some of the comments. Whoever designed those awful looking uniforms was either drunk or colorblind. Blue, green, white, and red. We are the Crimson Tide, not the Sherman. I don't even know what that means. Is that a reference that I should get? Uh, uh, Sherman Williams, the uh, paint company. Oh, right. Oh, okay. That doesn't even really make a ton of sense. Yeah, it's, it's a stretch. But also just rude because Alabama was wearing the teal uniforms 
for ovarian cancer awareness. All for Alex Day has been a thing in the conference. Now, in my opinion, is it the most attractive uniform that Alabama's worn on All for Alex Day? Not really. I like the white ones with the teal trim. That was really strong. Yeah. But to go out and like criticize the uniforms yeah. is ridiculous, especially when we all know for a fact it was hammered home. Posted on all Alabama social yeah, media, yeah. SEC social media. TV Beth and Michelle talked about, talked yeah. about it. We talked about it. Everyone is aware at this point. We've also been doing it for five years. Yeah. So if, if you hate it, then keep it to yourself yeah. because it's really not worth putting that out on social media. You got to think, I mean, say you missed all of that and you turned on and why is Alabama wearing a color that's not their normal color? That, that, same, that same thing that you posted on, it's connected to the internet. Oh, you could Google it and see why is Alabama wearing what, what they're wearing? And uh, it, it becomes, it makes you look less like a jacket. Okay, another one. It's our favorite repeat oh, offender. He knows who he is. Mark Hemphill called him out. Yeah. This is after the Georgia loss, which, you know, wasn't great. It, you know, there were some good moments, but Alabama couldn't get the timely hit. Patrick Murphy talked about it. Luckily, Alabama decided not to end the season after that one loss. Oh, praise be. Yes. Otherwise, what would we do mm. with our time? But the comment is, worst by far hitting team in the conference. So I read that, and I think, well, Tom... Alabama must be ranked last in every category, every single one. If it's not only the worst by far, then yeah. I mean, just like crazy. By the way, another frequent offender responded, you're right, spelling you're wrong. Right. And so somebody says, hey, have you you seen these teams? And shouting out a couple others who struggled offensively. And the original commenter, the OP, as they say, (laughs) said, replied with stats and said. He actually has stats. uh, Too many. Okay. 11th in runs scored, tied for 10th in hits, and 10th in home runs. Now, at the time, yeah, those stats are a little low. It doesn't take into context the opponents that Alabama's played compared to the Georgias of the world, whose non-conference strength of schedule is at 177 Right. right now. but. Alabama's like it, one or two. two. Right, it's yeah, two. Virginia right. Tech did just recently pass Alabama. Virginia but, Tech, who Alabama beat twice. But go yes. ahead, continue with, with, your, with your thought. But the main point is 11th, 10th, and 10th, not last. Not 13th. So the hilarious part is you're literally disagreeing with your own point. You said worse by far, and then you gave stats in which they are not the worst. So while yes, could the numbers be better for sure? There is greater context there that needs to be addressed. If you look at the conference stats, I think much more indicative of what the offense is because everybody's on an even playing field. Not everybody's playing the same conference schedule, but it's the same level of teams. But to disagree with your own point is frankly hilarious and off the wall. And just think before you type and don't make absolute statements. You know, all the other creeds of this segment. Yes. Go ahead, Tom. Pretty well done. My off the wall, I'm going to call out the producers of the ESPN Sports Center Top 10 today. Oh, I love it. Go, yes. go, off do the it. Wall. Okay, so the top 10, uh, top 10 plays of the night. They were doing top 10, not national championship basketball plays, which I appreciate. So let's, we're going to shout out some of the other sports that are going on. So I'm like, ooh, Alabama had a perfect game that ended with a, with a game-ending three-run homer. Surely that'll be on there. And then I see at number seven coming in, I see Road Stadium. Like, oh, good. They're going to do it. Awesome. But wait, why is it still light? Uh, this seems to be very early in the game. I don't remember anything good happening early in the game. They showed a line drive double play that Madison Kerpix turned as play number seven. I mean, it was an okay play. I mean, it, it was fine. fine. It, it wasn't, it, it was pretty pedestrian for a line drive double play. 
and and then uh they didn't mention the perfect game and then even they didn't even mention the fact that alabama won the game because normally when they do when they do plays they'll say and georgia went on to loss to lose the game and and alabama threw a perfect game like they could play congratulations they didn't do any of that they had to hurry on to their number six play which was from cricket they had to get to the cricket game <laughs> the cricket play that no one understands what happened and we couldn't we couldn't talk about what Lexi Kilfoyle did on a game that was on one of your networks. Come on, ESPN. What are we doing? Was cricket not on ESPNU? I, I don't think so. <laughs> and and it's not like this was some grainy footage that someone, you know, someone got with their iPhone and they sent in and you don't really know what happened. It's a game that was on the SEC network. It was on the regular with network. your top broadcast. Team. Yes. BMO and Schmitty were here. And and no mention of the result. It made no sense. And how you pick that play and not the game-ending three-run homer to seal a perfect game. On a good pitch. The more right. I've watched that pitch, the more I'm like, how did Allie do that? Right. It, it, because you were right at the time. It Because it was slower, I think that helped Allie, the pitch from Macy. But it did have the jumpiness. It did jump. When I first thought, I, well, I must not have jumped. I must not, but right. no, it did. She hit it up around her eyes and just drove it out. Which, Crazy. again, if Allie Shipman can do that consistently – I'm here for it. Yes, please. Yes. And it should be on ESPN on the top 10 if it happens. I'm in agreement with you, partner. That's good stuff. Thank you. That, that is a little bit out of the box. <laughs> on yeah. off the wall. Yes. Okay. Then uh, then dive into the suplexing and other <laughs> moves. Well, I have no idea what you're about to say because I don't understand. So well, please okay. enlighten me. <laughs> Again, that kind of fits in with the Grammys last week. And I didn't really understand some of the movies you were discussing. But the only, the only thing, I, I'm not going to go in depth heavily into the wrestling <laughs> stuff. I know most of you don't care. I, I will say, though, it, it just it makes me laugh that you just called them the Grammys about movies, oh, which right, is part, yeah. of, part, of the, part of the charm. Please right. go ahead, Tom. <laughs> the other award show I could care, not, care less about. Chris Stapleton was great. I watched the video of Chris I'm Stapleton. Sure, I'm sure he was. Freaking love Chris Stapleton. Yes. Oh, um, my I, guy. I will say the one thing about WrestleMania this weekend that really stood out was that in, in years past, when they bring in the quote unquote celebrities to, to have to have matches, um, they haven't been great. <laughs> you know, they, they're, they're there. They kind of wave. You know, Snooki had a match. Excuse you know, me? Yes, yeah, Snooki had a match at WrestleMania at one point. And that ended well? Uh, she did, She did like, some cheerleading stuff, which is actually pretty impressive. But the actual wrestling, not very good. We had what we would probably call three, quote-unquote, celebrity matches this year at WrestleMania. Logan Paul wrestled. Pat McAfee was amazing i did see that clip that was circulating on twitter i mean sports twitter really hopped onto that like regular like sports media yes pat mcafee really really good and one of the more enjoyable matches which i had zero expectations for johnny knoxville from jackass Mm. they had him he and Sami Zayn had a match the the big giant hand came out uh they had a giant mouse trap they had a table with little mouse traps that, that Sami got slammed through Wee Man came out and actually body slammed a uh, a large wrestler. Oh, uh, it, it was really impressive. I laughed the entire in the entire match. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Wasn't expecting it. So well done to all the all the celebrities that were part of WrestleMania this year. And also in the year of our Lord, 2022, 76 year old Vince McMahon and 50 some odd year old Stone Cold Steve Austin had matches at WrestleMania, and they were both awesome, and I enjoyed them. That is not what I will be doing at 76. <laughs> but this, so it, it's done. We get you back this weekend. Everything's, everything's back yes, to normal. Yes. Okay. Everything's back. I, I will not be 
<laughs> bolting out of anywhere. Tom, let's go down to the. Oh, oh bye. Okay, All right. Man. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad. I'm I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Um, I did because I know how much that means to you, and you know it's circled on the calendar. It's a it's an art form, if you want to call it that. It's sports entertainment. It's something that you need the the crowd interaction, and uh, and then this this year at you know Jerry World seventy seven thousand for both nights it was everything kind of it was another one of those things that really felt back to normal with scarborough's cousin there yeah amanda scarborough's cousin in attendance i think it was her cousin that's what it sounded like. yeah so so yeah fun good times way to yes. go everyone and it's, it's one of those things you know uh, my wife's not real excited about it but my <laughs> daughter is 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 really big into wrestling so it was kind of a family thing. That is very on. fun. I so loved I when like, I came by the other day and both of you were watching wrestling. So I was like, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> yes. And by the way, uh, if this episode gets a million listens, Tom and I will do a WrestleMania <laughs> act. <laughs> so Sounds download good. and share. Yes. What a huge weekend it was. So much to celebrate. And now we've entered into the era of bracketology. We have entered into the era of Every game matters in the SEC and every game has postseason and championship implications. This is when the sport really gets fun and really gets interesting, Tom. It does. Because, I mean, you go through, especially in February, there's so many games, you know, and, and teams are playing five, six games a weekend. But now we're getting to the point where you're only playing once a day, maybe doubleheader if there's weather, but you're scheduled for one game a day. They're all really important. You kind of get the best out of everybody. All of them are visible pretty yes. much. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what we're going to have here in the next few weeks. And, of course, the most visible of all the games this weekend in the SEC are Alabama, Florida. Not just on TV, Tom, but also on the radio. Yes. And we've got new ways to listen as well that really kicked off this past weekend. So many different ways already hearing from people that are listening uh, to us on the Varsity app. So you can hear pretty much any Alabama sport now is on the Varsity app. So that's available anywhere you go. Also, uh, if you're listening on the regular old radio in Tuscaloosa, you can hear us 97.5 FM, nick975.com, as well as the MeTV975 app. Yes, and at Varsity, just the one word on Twitter, uh, that will be usually linked to most of the tweets as well. And all mm -hmm. the tweets have links, so you just have to press. Absolutely. And just, there you go. Just, just push the button. We will have them out, and I'll tweet them out from my uh, personal account, T Canterbury RTR. I know you do it from other ones as well. Ah, yes. At Gray underscore Robertson. Look at you taking the yes, Twitter. I do that. And at out of the box underscore pod, of course. And also a reminder on Sunday, I'm going to go ahead and reveal it. Unless something changes, Sydney Little John Watkins will be coming in for an inning. And if things go well, maybe more. Yeah. We'll on see the how Crimson long Tide Sports Network. Depends on how much food she brings, is how long she can stay. She has told me cakes and barbecue are all happening. So that's exciting. Yes, I'm down. Here for it. I know it'll shock you, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in for it. Softball, we're, we're going. And I am so excited to see what happens this weekend in the marquee matchup that when the schedule comes out, you circle it anytime Alabama and Florida are set to play. Yeah, uh, maybe mentioned it. The the only team or teams that have won at least a share of the title in the regular season in this conference for over a decade now, whenever they get together, you know, it's going to be a big time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, get the uh, magnifying glass out. The chess matches will be in play. It's going to be so much fun. Thank you to Michelle Smith, by the way, for hopping on the episode. And thank you, everybody out there tuning in for listening to this probably lengthy episode, even though I've tried to edit it down to a respectable amount. We're trying to get it all the way from here to Gainesville. That's right. That's why we only have to listen to it once. <laughs>
we're just doing our best. <laughs> For my partner, Tom Canterbury, I'm Gray Robertson. If you're coming to Gainesville, swing by. We'll have some gear. But if not, tune into the games. It's going to be a great weekend. And definitely tune into the next edition of the Out of the Box podcast. We'll see you then.